You're listening to episode 148 of the Comics Pals, where a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. Today's a great day, everyone. Yeah? Yeah. Ding dong, the Iron Spider's dead. He is so dead. Good riddance to him. Good riddance to him. <laughs> Pete, how do you feel about that? Oh, I'm sorry. Are we, are we doing the show? Uh-huh. Yeah? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm ignoring you. This Ooh. is a no-sell. Oh. Tony yeah. Spider dead, though. Oh. Yeah, well, okay. He's gone. Yep. We don't have to acknowledge him anymore. Yeah. Well, Sounds- contractually, we can't. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's uh, no longer allowed on the playground. Yeah, so now he's playing the Venomverse. Great. Dun-dun-dun. This is the best timeline. This is yeah, yeah, I'm, even, I'm even more looking forward to Venom 2 now. 100%. Yep. Honestly. I'm really happy to hear that. I was yeah. really worried you wouldn't be on the same page as me, but this feels really good. Yeah, no, it's great. Well, yeah, I mean, wait. if you think about it, he's been a supporter the longest. Yeah, right? see, Marco knows. You keep forgetting this, this honestly. Is, this is true. I was the first person who said Venom would be great. 100%. So, That's uh, also a lie, but hey, uh, check it out. So what these guys are talking about is the big news of the week, which is that Spider-Man is no longer in the MCU because... <laughs> Sony and Disney could not come to terms on a new deal. God damn it. Money. I need Teddy Roosevelt to get me a new deal deal up in here. Normally. Franklin Roosevelt. Fuck. Dong. (laughs) Normally, I wouldn't let myself be this person. Normally, I would hold myself to a higher standard. But I do have to get onto this podcast. And I do have to say that I called this. Oh, you called it. A long time ago. So now that we all understand, <laughs> now that we all know that Sean has superpowers, right. we can move on with the show. We're going to talk about that a little later. Um, we have a lot of things to talk to you guys about. Uh, it's a big weekend for us. Uh, it's, a, it's just a, a lot of news, things like that. D23 just happened, so there's lots to talk about. I want to start with some big news you know, on our part, which is that we're actually all in the same space at the Woo! moment. Yep. Live from my living room in sunny Philadelphia. Condoms on the floor everywhere. Oh, is that what that was? Uh-huh. Those are balloons. Have you ever been to Condom Kingdom? Condom what? Kingdom, no. Yeah, one of the hottest spots in all of the city of brotherly love. Wow. Yeah, you too could buy a condom with Donald Trump's face on it. <laughs> Pass. That's my favorite sequel to Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> <laughs> Good. It's good. I was gonna say uh, it's my favorite peak precursor to Kingdom Come. Hey. No, no, I Sean didn't it. like that one. That was good. No. <laughs> okay. Like That's where Mark Wade got the idea, though. <laughs> so the reason why we are here in Pete's living room is because we are actually covering Keystone Comic Con this week, or weekend rather. Uh, this is a, a relatively new con, started two years ago, three years ago, something like that. I think this is the third one. I could be wrong. But, uh, yeah, we really like the people that, you know, kind of come to these to these conventions. Really, uh, cool. really cool, really more probably indie-focused. Um, and and it's, you know, we, we love Wizard World, but I think this one is kind of smoother yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna you know wrap to you guys about that here in a moment. I want to you know give our breakdown of of what our experience has been like so far, um, and actually how that ties into the craziness of the Disney uh, Sony deal and that falling apart. There is a there's a little bit of a tie in. So 
We're going to talk about that too. But first, I want to make sure to let you guys know where you can find us all over the internet. We are at the Comics Pals, wherever your social media is sold. You can write to us at the Comics Pals at gmail.com. Write to us, you know, talk about whatever whatever's on your mind. Uh, we've we've got some mail to read a little later. People want to know about our our take on the the Spider Man situation and different things like that. So we've got some stuff to talk about on that front. Uh, whatever podcast hosting platform you prefer, we're on there most likely. And if we're not, let us know so we can be. And uh, wherever you are, wherever it is that you consume us, make sure to leave us a like. Make sure to leave us a comment. If there's a subscription button, hit that. A follow button, hit that. You know, um, all that stuff is free to do, and it helps us out a lot more than it costs you. And we thank you for continuing to support us. Yeah, and a quick shout-out for our next book club. It's going to be dropping tomorrow. That's going to be Howard the Duck, uh, and that's going to be with uh, Tyler Olson from the Lombucks as well. So got to talk about that. Um, and then wait for our next announcement the following week, uh, that first week of September. can't believe we had that quack on. Ah. <laughs> you laugh at that one, but not my Great Kingdom Come joke. Move on, Pete. Fuck. <laughs> I never move on from anything. We don't move on, Phil. We're trying to move the show along, Sean. Nice, nice. I like that. Thank you. Uh, so, Marco, uh, I did want to want to turn the tables on you a little bit. Ah, shit. Yeah. So, ah, Marco. Shit. We, we've been remarking over the weekend that Marco has really uh, sort of come into his Social own. Deviant. Okay, no. Oh, I, sorry. I, we weren't going to put you on blast like that, but whoops. you just outed yourself. Whoops. I thought there were certain things that were for off the air. <laughs> I mean, listen. Do, I'm, you, I'm, not, I'm an open yeah. playbook. If you're an open book, then let's spill it because I think that if that's the case, I'd rather this episode be. Next. Thanks a lot, Marco. What I was going to say, what I was going to say is that I would love it to turn this episode into a focus on you, if possible. It's a very Ooh. special episode of the since, Comic Pals. Since you're open, yeah. He okay. Is, he's a little turned up, though. Okay. Yeah? Okay. All right. That'll be the next episode. Anyway, <laughs> what, I, what I really wanted to talk to you about is this weekend at the con, you've been really energized and... I've seen you running around, uh, talking to different people, scheduling interviews. You've been really excited about the focus on indie stuff at this convention. Obviously, we mostly do New York Comic Con where it's like all kinds of stuff. You know, it's larger than life. This is a little smaller. Yeah. And you seem to be in your element. Why don't you speak on that a little bit? Uh, it's been a lot of fun to look at some of the publishers that don't get a lot of the spotlight. Uh, so SourcePoint Press is one that is uh, has a bigger name but is still on that echelon of not there as uh, like, they're like a point percentile on sales and all that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, but being able to interact with them and see like the kind of output that they're, that they have and, and the stuff that they're trying to do has been really inspiring too. Cause you know, it's a, it's a thing of they are the next wave of creators that is, are going to start trying to making their name and these smaller publishers to go on to those next, larger books and a Marvel and a DC and an image or something. Um, and we also got to chat with Ohio Comics um, uh, and the two guys there, Justin and Darren. And then um, we were talking to Ben at Source Point uh, and getting to chat about, you know, uh, how Ahoy was founded. We will have an interview with him that will be out uh, later this week. 
and um, yeah, just being able to chat with people who you interact with, or at least I've been interacting with as I've entered the indie space a little bit more. Uh, this one book that I got by a Greg Anderson, uh, it's called Is Nana the Wear Spider? The third name here, the colorist, is somebody that I just happen to follow because I've been interacting in these indie circles. I'm like, oh, dude, like I know this guy. He's really great. Uh, or I know his work, rather, and, and we got to chatting and to bonding. So uh, it's it's been really cool to see how much there is out there that isn't the big two of, of, of comics and, and to see how it's continued to grow and how that how that area of comics is growing. Awesome. Yeah, and, and we've got a lot of footage uh, showcasing you know, some of these interviews like what Marco's talking about, you know, giving you guys a flair for what Keystone is like if you weren't able to make it out. And, you know, we always have this kind of content on our YouTube page for any of the conventions that we go to. So make sure you subscribe over there for more of that good stuff. If you're into that, I know a lot of you guys like to read books that aren't necessarily conventional in a lot of cases. And you've written to us about that. So uh, we feel like the books that we end up talking about when we go to these shows are right up your alley. So I think that content is worth consuming if you are into our opinions about books in general. If you're a real Marco maniac too, who feels like he doesn't talk enough on the show, you know, the millions and millions of you, uh, these YouTube videos coming out will be really up your alley. Yep. All right. Yeah, I like it. So we're going to move on. Uh, we're going to actually get into the, well, actually before, before we move on, I do want to know from you guys, Phil, Pete, what's your experience been like so far here at the con? Uh, it's been really chill. You know, I, I haven't been to Keystone before, uh, but it does kind of remind me of what wizard world was like before it kind of started going downhill, which I hate to say, cause uh, wizard world is a convention that's kind of near and dear to our, our hearts. Um, it's the first one we did like as a group, but uh, over the last couple of years, it feels like the management there has not really been keeping up, um, and it feels like Keystone is like a worthy successor to what was going on there because it felt well organized. I felt like everything was spaced out really well. It wasn't too crowded, um, but it, it was nice to have a space that was a little bit more, you know, um, akin to like a smaller con. You know, like there's a really, really great selection of uh, back issues all over the place. I picked up. I think in the neighborhood of like 15 issues of Invincible. Wow. Um, when Sean and I were out kind of like poking through some of the long boxes, I found a great vendor who had like, like I said, like several uh, Invincible issues that I really needed for my collection. Are, are you um, trying to collect all of them? In okay, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I want to get the entire set. Is there and, 151? Uh, it's 100 and... No, I, I caught the joke, but I'm trying to really answer... <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like 144 or something like that. Oh, cuts off right. like a teeny. Yeah, I know. Right, real close. Um, so I I was able to fill in a ton in the like early numbers, which are the harder ones to come by, and I got like a fantastic deal. So I was really stoked about that. Yeah, I was really impressed when Robert Kirkman high fived you today. Yeah, dude. I mean, we're like BFFs. So we go way back. Really, yeah, really yeah. respect that. Yeah, we went to high school together. Nice. Love. Oh, yeah, I saw some of those pictures. Great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's accomplished a lot more in his life than you. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He makes me feel really inadequate. Anyways, <laughs> uh, I'm glad that you enjoyed your your time so far at the con. I spent way too much money, but it's been fun. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, you're you're. Always, it's always compelling to go to these shows and like, you know, the deals are so amazing and you look through and there's, you know, cool books to buy and um, 
I always I always have to watch myself from going too crazy. As yeah. Well. Oh, one other thing that was cool was uh, I found a um, a local like Pokemon battling collective. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like the Philly Philadelphia Pokemon Club or something like that, um, which is pretty tight. So I'm gonna go check that out. So shout out to them; they were really nice. Awesome. Phil, did you have anything to add, or are uh, you good? Yeah, I really liked when I bullied Tom Holland today, and I just kind of really heckled him for not being Spider-Man anymore. That was a lot of fun. Um, I was really disappointed that I didn't see any Beyblade cosplayers. I thought this would be the year, finally. <laughs> and uh, My least favorite person. And uh, I saw Rhino today. <laughs> that, was, that actually happened. The, the the WWE superstar. Yeah, not Rhino. the Spider-Man villain. Otherwise, yeah, I would have continued. Not, not Paul Giamatti. You, well, you'd be dead. Can you imagine Rhino. if Paul Giamatti was here specifically like for like... His role is the Rhino in Amazing Spider-Man 2. <laughs> He's like, uh, Sony's got it back. <laughs> They're bringing me back for the sequel. Finally. Finally. I can reprise my greatest role. <laughs> Why does he sound like that? That's Paul Giamatti. That's kind of what he sounds yeah. like. He's got a weird voice. Yeah. I'm not good at impressions. That's but. close enough. <laughs> so, yeah, those were my highlights today, except for the Beyblade thing. Paul that Giamatti. Was, that was an anti-highlight. I really wanted to see uh, uh, Dragoon. It's a low light, as some might call it. Yeah. yeah. An, what do you say? An anti-highlight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And into light. So real quick, uh, Phil, you said you said Blue Dragon. What name three other Beyblades that you would have liked to see cosplays of? Uh, Trigger. <laughs> okay, that's one. That was the Tiger one. Don't remember the rest. Okay, all right. Got two. Fake ass fan. I got it. I, well, I never said I was a big fan. I just want to see the cosplay. <laughs> all right. I want to see these folks spinning. Let it rip. Let it rip. <laughs> so. <laughs> Instead of uh, talking about Beyblades, why don't we let it rip with the listener mail that we have for the week? Why? Do they have gas? Sure. Can you just, as a personal favor to me from now on, can, when it's time for reader mail, can you be like, let it rip with some reader mail? Because <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, I like that as a transition. All right. You got it, man. All right. All right. Let's let it rip. So uh, we're going to start with a letter from our pal Ryan, regular listener, regular writer of the show, uh, who wanted to write in about this Spider-Man news. Hi, pals. By now, we've all heard the news that Spider-Man will no longer be in the MCU. I have many, many questions, but I know this will be one of your main topics, so I'll leave it to you guys to put it into perspective. I have a feeling it may still work out, but if it doesn't and Sony maintains exclusive rights to the character, I am almost certain they will totally screw it up. Anyway, after listening to all the praise you guys have offered it, I finally picked up the first volume of Crowded by Chris Sabella. I don't normally look for humor and satire in my comics, not as the primary force that drives the story anyway, but for some reason, I really like this one. At three issues in, I can see it's a really clever allegory for call-out outrage culture, society's tendency to metaphorically assassinate people using the power of the internet and social media whenever those people make the slightest mistake is made literal to drive the point home, and I dig it. Mad props to your boy Sabella for addressing this subject. This art is also great. It's appropriately colorful, but also perfectly in sync with the tone of the book, particularly when it comes to the characters' mannerisms and facial expressions. I also wanted to talk about The Boys. Have you guys watched it? I'd read two volumes of the comic and didn't care for it much, but I really enjoyed the TV adaption. On its face, it seems like this show would be silly, but its execution is anything but. Sure, it has moments of comedy, but it's clear that the characters are the show's centerpiece. Homelander was is great in particular. He seems to wear his damaged psyche on the outside, and the show provides an interesting uh, study of it. Annie is also great as the show's moral compass. I thought her arc was the most well-realized of the bunch. If you guys had a chance to watch the series, what'd you think? Anyways, thanks for... Oh, I'm sorry. As always, thanks for reading. Sincerely, Ryan. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for writing in again, Ryan. Yo, shout out to reading Crowded. Crowded, yeah. yeah. Big fans of that book. Um, glad you checked it out. And uh, you shout out the art. We did do an interview as well with yes. the uh, the creative team. Um, well, obviously, Chris is part of the creative team. That was a stupid way to say that. The art team, Ted and Roe, um, a couple months back. So go check that one out. We've done two. Oh, yeah, right. I forgot. I missed the second time they came around. Um, the first time, all I remember is that they have a crossbow. I'll never forget that. Or a compound <laughs> right. bow or whatever. Um, but yeah, th- those were great interviews. So go check that out, Ryan, if you're a fan of the book. Uh, if you haven't read Crowded, you should be. It's a really good time. That's a classic TCP bump for our friends, our creators, because obviously we're putting them places. Oh, yeah. They're on the map because of us, baby. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just saying, you know, like, before that... <laughs> Before the first appearance, right? You know, you know, there's no way. This plane is crashing. And I'm just, all right, I'm just going to leave this to future Marco to fix. So this nope. Is, this, 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 is where, show. this is where I come in. Go, go ahead, Marco. Go you ahead. can listen to Ted and, uh, Ted and Roe on episode 72. There you go. Thank you for that. I appreciate nice. that as first always. Appearance. John so sh- shifting gears, uh, yeah. I did want to address the rest of your mail. I actually did watch... The first episode of The Boys, and I did it specifically because you asked. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I wanted to be able to answer the question with some thoughts, so I was able to get the first one in for you, and I really, really enjoyed it. I think that the way that it presents the world as being completely legitimate, it's not its not meant to be some sort of deconstruction. It's not meant to be necessarily satirical or anything like that. It's really just... These characters are garbage, right? And, you know, it's like, what are your heroes really like? You know, the people that Mm. you celebrate, what are they like behind the scenes? And uh, I really love that element of it because, you know, when have you ever seen the Flash the way he's presented in that first episode? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, It's outrageous. Yeah, so I also checked out The Boys. Um, I watched the entire first season already, uh, and I I was also a big fan of it. Um, I never got to check out the comic itself, but um, for what it was worth, I definitely, I thought that the story was really interesting because it reminded me a lot of, um, Sean and I were talking about it last night, and it reminded us a lot of the the Ultimates run um, of... uh, yeah, post ultimatum. I guess the ultimate comics, ultimates, which is one hell of a name, um, by Hickman, and uh, as well as kind of Watchmen. But like you pointed out, kind of without the deconstruction, it feels like it doesn't exist to offer commentary on superheroes as much as it is kind of like a exploration of you know, um, kind of the I think the way that we view like heroes and celebrity and stuff like that you know it's it's every everyone in the world has this view of what the heroes are like and behind closed doors you know they're really getting down to some pretty sinister shit and i think um particularly in uh in the culture that we find ourselves today you know that's that's a pretty like hot topic right of people who've been in the public eye for decades kind of being uh, called out on stuff that they've been doing to people behind the scenes, you know? And um, I thought exploring that with superheroes was kind of... It was a fresh take on the whole what if superheroes were real thing. Um, and I, I really dug it. It was a lot better than I was expecting, even though I had heard it was really strong. Uh, a lot of friends of mine have been really pushing me to watch this. Yeah, uh, same. 
one comparison I heard, and uh, you'll have to tell me, Pete or Sean, uh, how accurate you find it, but uh, the Kick-Ass movies. Mm, so I can see that comparison, but the Kick-Ass movies are like lighthearted, and oh, The Boys is not lighthearted. Like huh. Ryan called out, there are like moments of humor. Like that's definitely the case, um, but. I would say overwhelmingly it's heavy and the vast majority of the main characters are like objectively deplorable people, you know, that are like not, you know, um, they're, they're not like these people that have done bad things or that are complex and like, they're just bad, you know? And so I, I, I think in terms of the whole, it's a grounded, gritty superhero thing. I can see the kick-ass comparison, but I feel like that's a little uh, superficial. Okay. Yeah, so definitely going to continue watching The Boys. It's good. I'm interested in hearing what the rest of what you think about it, Sean, when you get through it. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, and as you said, we will absolutely be talking about the Spider-Man news a little later, so uh, hopefully you and everyone else stays tuned for that. Because we are going to have hot takes. But in any event, let's move on to the next mail. Yes. All right. So uh, this one comes from uh, Steve Baum, who wrote in and said, Just finished Event Leviathan 3. This book is garbage. (laughs) At first I figured... I don't know a ton about DC. I'm a Marvel guy. Maybe I'm just not getting it. It's Heroes in Crisis all over again. Nothing is happening. I've read all three issues. I've listened to yours and other podcasts review this or review them. If somebody asked me what has happened so far, I don't think I could answer. So far, the Spiral, Argus, organizations, etc. of the world have been wiped out. The rest of the book is them standing in a room talking. Why do I do this to myself? Switch to Powers of X slash Powers of 10. It's amazing. I've heard some criticism that people don't know what's going on. One, you're not supposed to have the full picture yet. People who make this argument are the worst. It's like watching a mystery or spy movie, but saying, I don't know who did it, so it sucks. You're not supposed to until the end. Two, we have enough info to know the uh, to have an idea of what is happening and how it's coming together. The art is magnificent. In issue three alone, we have awesome panels of Mag- of Charles and Magneto shaking hands, which is just a powerful, simple panel. We have the awesome exchange between Charles, Mag, and um, so Magneto and Cyclops. Uh, can it be done? Does it need doing? Yes. Then it will be done with the fabulous art and colors on Scott's visor. Man, that's the kind of panel that you remember next time something difficult happens in your life and you think, I can do this. It will be done. (laughs) Uh, How can two events be so different? Three, if you can't hear us in crisis. Hickman is putting on a masterclass of what an event should be. One question. How the hell is Xavier walking around? I haven't read much X-Men lately. Did I miss something or are we not supposed to know this yet? Keep up the great show. Listening to you guys is like having a laid back convo with friends, ripping on each other and just having fun. Thank you, Steve Baum. We appreciate you writing in, Steve. I'm glad you enjoyed the show. We do not rip on each other. We're all very cordial and friendly with one another. Shut the fuck up, Phil. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you, man. I think last week on the show, when it was uh, me, Marco, and Phil reviewing it, we kind of expressed the same thing. We read those two books back to back, and 
Uh, I am just not. I'm not enjoying Event Leviathan. It, it, it's yeah. it's come to chore territory for me, where I'm reading it because we're reading it on the show, and I'm just really not getting much out of it anymore, aside from the awesome art by Alex Believe. Yep. Um. Meanwhile, what Hickman's doing with the X Men is just like really knocking my socks off. He's not wearing socks. It's true, fam. I, I, they're <laughs> off. Uh, you know, go ahead. Sorry, I just want to address, uh, Steve. You you said you don't read a lot of DC. What is the kind of stuff that you read from Marvel? Because I'm curious to see what we can maybe put you on. Oh, that's a good nice. call. Good call. Yeah, make sure you write in again. Yeah. So, I I, I did want to talk a little bit about Event Leviathan because oh. I listened to oh my God. the review and you guys beat this book really bad. We did because it's trash, though. Okay, but here's the thing: <laughs> during the review, you guys, I think it was specifically Pete, said that the scene that the fight scene was just what we had seen the last issue with a little bit of added context. And that's not true. That was like a whole... That was, We hadn't seen that. The, the second issue ends before the fight starts. And then the third one gives us everything that took place during that during that time that we missed out. Yeah, no, and you're right. But it's just like filling in a gap of not that much time. And it, it didn't even really like... I don't know. I felt like I didn't get anything out of that that was that interesting. It's like... Yeah, okay, like Lois and, um, is he Red Hood? No, what do they call him now? Uh, the Todd. Red, Red Hood. Yeah, oh, okay, Red it Hood. is, okay. Um, their their conversation, like, fills in a gap, but I didn't feel like it advanced the story enough to be the meat of the issue, that's you our, know? that's our whole, That was our whole point last week, is that um, it just feels like more exposition dumps, Um there's nothing, there's no, like, there are no, like, active events taking place. It's a bunch of detectives postulating over events that have already happened. And granted, we're seeing them in flashbacks, but that doesn't make for a very interesting narrative. It's a lot of, let me tell you what happened. It reminds me a lot of your criticism uh, of Castlevania Season 2, Sean, when we were talking about that. And you're like, they're just standing around in a fucking library, like, waiting for the next part of the story, you know? Right. Uh, okay. Well, in any event, um, to comment on the rest of your email, uh, I agree that House of X slash Powers of Ten is leagues better. And I think what it comes down to is that every issue of the book is leaving you in a different place than it began. And a, like a dramatically different place, but not to the degree that you can't digest what you just experienced. And I think that that's such a big difference. Um, you know, whether you like Event Leviathan or you like Heroes in Crisis or not, it's hard to argue with the fact that individually those issues didn't advance the story forward too much. It was more issues, a big issue, the first issue, of course, mm. and then another issue that didn't advance the story much. And then the train completely stopped. And then it became a bullet train in the last <laughs> issue or so. And that's the same trajectory that Event Leviathan seems to be on, whereas House and Powers have just been big and, and, and epic throughout. So I don't think it has anything to do with epicness or grandiose. Like At no point during Hickman's event did I feel like dissatisfied with the narrative flow of the story. Even when it was vague, it 
it left you in suspense of, okay, what does this mean? That, that was the whole point. It, it left meaningful questions. Whereas with Event Leviathan, the question is always just, okay, well, who's Leviathan? And that that is a question, granted, but it's not really the question. It's not like a question that I don't I don't really care. I don't care who Leviathan is. Anymore. I did early, I, like maybe at that issue zero or whatever. That was cool. But the biggest problem with that is just that uh, Leviathan doesn't do anything. That's the biggest problem. Yeah, like he just not shows up and talks to people. Yeah, that that is the issue. Is that he's, he's totally right. Yeah, but not, yeah, uh, Marco, did you have anything to add? Or are you good? Nah. All right, cool. Uh, so, did you want to answer his other part? I guess about him, why Xavier is standing. Or oh something? yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the only w- the only information that we have uh, that we could possibly have is based on what happens in the last issue of Uncanny X Men. Believe that was number twenty three by Matthew Rosenberg, where we see that Professor Xavier is um, is alive. In or it's I don't think it's it might not be that issue, but this is this is something that happened uh, during that run during that period. As we see that Professor Xavier is alive, he stands up and uh, he says, "I have a new dream," and we know that early like last year, I believe it was in Charles Soule's Astonishing Run, they saved Charles Xavier's psyche from the Shadow King. He was in the the, the Shadow King's realm. I forgot what it's called. It's probably the Shadow, the Shadow Realm. realm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. You've activated my trap card, Sean. He literally got sent to the Shadow Realm. Um, so they rescued him from the Shadow Realm, and th- he didn't have a body, so they used Phantom X's body. So currently, well, everything I just said is a long way of saying that Charles Xavier exists right now in Phantom X's body. At, at least that is the last time that we saw Professor X. Whether that has anything to do with what's happening with him in the book now, that's up to Hickman. Yeah, so we'll find out um, next time on Dragon Ball Z. Probably not. No, no, I don't yeah. think that that's something that's going to get answered in this run. Yeah, not, not, not with any speed. I don't because I, I feel like that's on the list of relevant questions. Well, it's, it's low given what I just said. That's yep. a good point. Yeah, unless it's unless it's a different reason than what I just said, they might not address it at all. So, um, but yeah. Thank you for writing in. You're a new new name to us, so thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate that. And hopefully you guys are inspired by Steve to write into us as well. Uh, we are the Comics Pals at the Comics Pals at gmail.com. So uh, hit us up and we will chat. Now, we're going to get into our Powers of 10 review, but I want to quickly get through the Pals polls. So I will start with Phil and myself. We both chose House of X number three. Yeah, let's keep it going. That's uh, mine too, sorry. Oh, cool. All right. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Pete. Uh, Happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, let's keep the train going. Um, the last time we uh, left off on House of X was the Moira McTaggart issue. Um, which Still my favorite issue. Yeah, it was stellar. Uh, I imagine it'll probably fall, especially after reading Powers of X number three. Uh, we'll probably follow in the same vein. Um so, yeah, let's do it. I'm ready for another week of this. It's a hell of a toboggan ride. Me too, man. I mean, this book has just been an absolute joy. Um, I am just all in on the ride, and Hickman hasn't let us down yet, and I'm really excited to uh, get back, actually, to House, because as much as I like Powers and 
um, you know, how it's been dealing with things as well. Like, I really want the follow up to that more issue. Yeah, uh, I feel the same way. I don't I don't have anything different to add. It's going to be great. Uh, Book then, of the year. Sorry? Book of the year. So far. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so then also from Marco, we've got Manor Black number two. Uh, Manor Black is a Brian Hurt, Cullen Bunn, and Tyler Cook book. Uh, so this is the second issue. Um, we interviewed him. He spoke a bit about um, you know his process. He talked about the book. So if you guys want to go check that out, um, you can. I'm, I'm going to pull up the uh, episode. Um, but yeah, it's it's a uh, I, I love Tyler Crook because he has a really um, bright and vibrant watercolor style. Um, his inks are amazing. He does everything by hand with uh, some digital alterations afterwards. Um, but it's it's awesome stuff. Uh, you I've spoken really highly of him because of uh, Harrow County, um, as well as uh, Stone Kings, um, which we we talked to him about. I love that book, man. Yeah, Stone Kings was or Stone King was great. Stone King, yes. Which is a Amazon book. If you want to yes. check it out? Very yep. good. Um, and that episode was one thirty four. If you guys want to go check that out. Awesome. Is this that? Is this does this, does this have uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith? It does not. Oh, so is this the one with Chris Hemsworth and? Um... That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. Man in Black too. Cool. Man or Black. Oh, man, Man in Black. Okay. Man or Black. Oh, Man or Black. Sorry. But okay, got it. <laughs> anyway, so Tommy Lee Jones isn't in this book. He's not. Mm. <laughs> I'm kind of disappointed. So that's that's Manor Black, right? From yes. Dark Horse. Yes. Okay. And then uh, you also got Doctor Mirage. <laughs> um, Doctor Mirage is a valiant book. Uh, no, no context for it. It had a cool name, and then I saw, oh, this is Valiant, and Valiant is a publisher that I have not read a lot of. Mm. Um, it's something I want to read more of. Um, I know there's a lot of good stuff that I've heard coming out of it, so uh, if this isn't a way in, I'm going to take it. Awesome. The only other book that I had was Batman Superman uh, Volume 2, Number 1. Oh, wait, sorry. Can, oh. Can, I just, can I just call out? This is actually being written by Mags, um, Manny Visaggio. Oh, oh cool. That. Awesome. So, uh, Batman Superman number one is by Joshua Williamson and David Marquez. This book is exciting for a few reasons. Number one, it is David Marquez's first foray into DC. He'd been exclusive to Marvel for the longest, and he is a beast. So, I'm really excited to see his take on these characters. He um, Was that Captain Marvel? Or, um, David Marquez? Uh, no, David Marquez is most associated with uh, Ultimate Spider-Man and uh, uh, Civil War Two. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe he did Captain Marvel. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, so, yeah, Joshua Williamson has had a lot of positive things to say about this book. Um, there's a lot of big ideas coming into it. It has a lot to do with the uh, Year of the Villain stuff. I'm not going to get into all that, but it's really exciting, and Joshua Williamson is great, so I can't wait to see him tackle these two characters. I've talked a lot about the flash and yep. he's writing that so that's great this will probably be great too i'm really interested to see what you have to say about this uh, uh i'm not a hard sell on books that sean likes so uh i'm really enthusiastic to see what you have to say good i like i like that i like that uh that my word has some sway with you it, yeah uh not like these other two bozos that's <laughs> Bozo. yeah, fine i don't respect you at all so someone talk i don't even know 
<laughs> Sounds like oh, the air conditioning just came on again. <laughs> nice. Damn, this is my house, right? You can leave. Oh, I'm sorry. It was hot air. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to jump into our powers of ten, number three review now. Actually, I'm really, really, really excited to talk about this book with you guys. Dude, me too. This is Jonathan Hickman. This is R.B. Silva. This is Marta Gracia. This is Clayton Cowles. This is Tom Miller. This is a, a tremendous creative team that they've assembled for this book. And for those of you who might have not been aware, this is the this is the two week period where it's uh, powers in a row. So two powers in a row, and then we're gonna get two house in a row. So um, and this this also marks the halfway point, right? So um, let's just jump right into it. There's so many reveals in this issue but then also so many questions there's there's a lot to talk about does anyone have a hot off the presses uh feeling the first thing that stood out to me was this was the first book in the um powers of 10 line that the entire issue focused on one time period yep which i liked actually um i have commented in the previous reviews about how i kind of liked how House was a little bit more focused and Powers was a little bit wider and like the way they played off each other was really interesting. Um, But I liked that it focused on one time period for the whole time this time because it answered a lot of questions that we had and it finally kind of tied the uh, the tied off that thread of what was going on with Moira's ninth life. Why was there not an end to that timeline in the big timeline we saw in the um, House of X number two? kind of infographic so uh, it was great to get a continuation of that answer some of those questions and confirm some of the theories that we had you know suspected um and you know move the the story forward a little bit too because it not only answered a bunch of those questions in the same way that every one of these issues has it at least gave us one little thread of like oh so this is why the 10th life is different right right now we have another question to ask is like what was the data and God, like Hickman's just brilliant. Every every issue gives you that little that little takeaway, you know? And like God help me, like I had a moment where I empathized with Apocalypse. Oh my god. You know? Like and I was like, damn, all right. That's cool. We understand that you want to usher in the end times. I mean Yeah, at this point, let's just get it over with. Pull the band aid off Let already. it end. Man, you're the new kale. Um, <laughs> somebody's got to do it one thing I really like and this is like a Morrison type thing and I know I always come back to that when we talk about Hickman is like he goes and waxes through these grandiose ideas but then like he's able to just kind of reduce characters to their bare minimum qualities which is there's some there's something really minimalist about that and obviously spoilers if you haven't read it I don't know why you're listening this far if you are doing that but yeah um, there's a part where uh, Logan, who's the Horseman of Death, awesome. Uh, by the way, that page has a typo and misspells Apocalypse, but that's neither here nor there. Oh shit! That's yeah. funny. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, where he sees Moira, and he uh, this is after he gets like the the files from Nimrod or whatever, and uh, he he is Moira says to him, "It's okay. I have what I need now, and this this is what you do before Wolverine." murders her uh 
that whole page is terrific, but like that kind of aspect of Wolverine, because you know he's the best what he is and what he does isn't pretty or whatever. Um, and it, it you know, he, he kills Mario McTaggart here, and um, uh, so in this book of all these great ideas, Hickman still is able to just kind of he kind of just fundamentally gets these core X Men characters. I like the this entire book was or, or this issue was just sci-fi stuff yeah. that's all it was right mm-hmm. and and he he handles it so well um mixing you know the the tech action with just sort of conversations you might have about technology in general like within the uh within just the casual conversation and it's it's fun to see him play in in, in that element and to see the x-men all fit in so cozy into it or at least the, the X Men that we know, and then the the new X Men that he sort of uh, puts a twist on. Uh, like I love that Cipher was that plant dude, um, and yeah, he, he has such a way with that sort of style. So I, I'm really I'm really happy that this this issue answered several different questions that we had. Um, you know, we now know the identity of some of these chimeras where you know we had questions about magneto we've now got the answer that that's not magneto uh we know that this is logan you know this is the real wolverine um so real quick you know who is did they name them yes who is it so magneto's north north that was it okay and north is a combination of who was it uh dane and frost yeah, Emma Frost and Lorna Dane. Okay. Yeah, so... And they just have Magneto's armor for some reason. Because Lorna Dane is Magneto's daughter. Yep. Oh! Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um. Also, Zorn is just Zorn. Zorn is Zorn. Yeah, I Zorn love is that. just Zorn. <laughs> yep, I love that Zorn is Zorn. Uh, and his whole thing was rad as hell in this issue. Yeah, speak on it. Uh, I was gonna bring up the page, but um, so I, I guess the broad plot here is uh, Apocalypse leads his horsemen into Nimrod's, you know, like fortress or whatever, and this this group of like uh, myriad of like mutants and ch- chimeras and stuff. Uh, chimera, uh, chimera. Uh, distract uh, Chimichanga. Chimichanga. Nope, I'm not gonna say that. Um, they they go and kill like this human robot weird cult camp. They go to this church to distract uh, like the Nimrod people, and in doing so, uh, this this uh, like general. I'm doing a terrible job explaining this. This, this general of Nimrod goes to confront all the mutants there because they're not sure why they're attacking the humans. Um, but it's really just a distraction so that they can kill Moira McTaggart and, uh, Zoran, who's just begging for death, uh, <laughs> uh, they unleash his, uh, what, what was it? His singularity? Yeah. Uh, underneath his mask. Center of a black hole. Uh, yeah, which is a, the equivalent of the center of a black hole. And, yeah. So he has a singularity in his head and, uh, it creates a black hole. <laughs> And the power to the 110th universe or whatever that we know. And so ended Moira McTaggart's ninth life, I think. Yes. Yes. And that was the most major reveal in this issue, which is that this is actually Moira's ninth life. Mm -hmm. 
Called it, baby. This is the time of the show where I get to be that guy. There you go. You did uh, say that. Yeah. So th- that's a huge deal because it answers a lot of the, the problem elements of the last issue um, and of the timeline, right? Because this couldn't possibly be our future. Right. This does. This isn't consistent with timeline 10. Timeline 10 and timeline 9 are different. But we're seeing things here that just don't add up. So now that we know that this is timeline nine, that makes sense. But it asks, it, it forces us to have to ask big questions as well. So first of all, if this is nine and the the the, the year 1000 or whatever, it's a thousand years, right? Yeah. 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 So the thousand year uh, jump can't also be nine because nine is over. Yep. Well, it's but, a, so what's odd is the way they look back is as if they're looking through the past, but it's completely plausible, I'd say, that they're looking through a possible past or an alternate past because they're so far in the future they can look at, you know, uh, you know, different realities or whatever. Wait, yeah. who? Who's looking? Um, uh, the blue chick in the 1,000 years in the future. I can't remember her name. Oh, the librarian. Yeah, the librarian. She's looking at these... So she's looking at the ninth timeline because I think ultimately what the whole point of looking a hundred years in the future is, is that it's meant to seriously inform everything that's happening in house of X and what's going to happen in this 10th lifetime of Moira McTaggart. But obviously, and this is what we've talked about in every review is it the most cryptic is what happens a thousand years in the future. And I think it is completely possible that they, are able to look at all of Moira McTaggart's lives like it's some kind of library. That is a fascinating theory, and it's one that I've seen floated around. Oh, really? It's, yeah, it's, it's my favorite one so far as far as what's really going on. It's funny because with that theory in mind, it, it brings me back to the conversation that you and I had, uh, I guess, what, two weeks ago now about yeah. issue two, and I threw out the interpretation I've been having of the files that the files, uh, like the pages that we've been reading that just are info dumps are files that belong to someone. And I'm wondering if maybe those are entries in the library. Mm. I think there's, I, th- I, I don't think so because I feel like this is just a Hickman thing. Just, that, yeah, and that's that, what Sean's that read on it, is that it's stylized too. that way, but it's not anything in universe. I feel like that's something Grant would do, but yeah. I don't know if that's something Hickman would do. But it provides context for what's going on in each of the in like the stories and stuff. So it yeah. has to it has to be integral to the I, fact that I, it's part of it. I think it's for the reader. I don't think so. It it it, it, it has to like be able to inform cuz even earlier it was like the breakdown of each of the individual organizations that built this uh the the breakdown of each of the characters and actors and how they affect the, the future and all that. I think I think that's an author that has so much written down that can't easily be communicated through just story progression and narrative that uh, he wants to provide as much context in as little space as possible. That's exactly what I said. That's mm-hmm. the same thing I said. Uh, it's well, so funny. We're tag team champions, Sean. Exactly. So... I, I think the other interesting the other interesting element and and I think you're probably right about that theory but the other interesting element is that that has to take place in a timeline so which one is it right presumably right. the tenth well why why not the eleventh is there an eleventh or, or the eleventh sure my my theory right now my running theory is that the to the the thousandth 
to the tenth power. The a thousand year in the future timeline is going to be the long term ramif is like the long term ramifications of the tenth life, and that through some weird bullshit, Moira will get reset again, and eleventh will be the end of the event. I think that's that's the, my working theory right now. The, the okay, so then your working theory is that the eleventh life is the current Marvel, because it has to be not what? not the current Marvel, but what will be current Marvel when the event is over, if that makes sense. But the problem the, the, that that would include a reboot of the entire Marvel, and they're not doing that. Why do you think it would have to until that? Because if so, things either happened or they didn't. So if you're saying that if you're saying that um, the X Men would be rebooted, right? Or reloaded into an eleventh, the eleventh life of Moira. Yeah, then yeah. that negates all the things that we've already seen. You're talking to a continuity nerd, Pete. I'm tr- so I'm trying to think through the logic behind that because why? Why okay. is that any different than if the tenth life right now is the end of the event? If the t- if the tenth life is the current life, that's consistent with the timeline. If, I see what you're saying. Yeah. We talked about this where we were like, because it has the birth of her son and the marriage of that other guy is this 616. Yeah, that's the that's the real life right. Mora we've lived with. Yeah. So you can't get rid of that and have an 11th life if the 10th life is also true. Only one of them can be true. True in a sense of what we've experienced as readers. I'm just wondering mm. if it... I don't. Hmm. I have to think about this. I have to think about this. Don't hurt yourself. <laughs> so, I th- I think that that that's something to to mull over. Uh, the other yeah. question is, and and obviously no one has to have an answer, but I just think it's interesting to bring it up again. Is what's happening with universe or life six with that gap, right? And the coma, right? Pete was yeah. asking about that. I don't know. I've yeah. been I've been thinking about it every time I read it. This is where Leviathan comes in, okay? No, okay. please, God, no. He put her in a uh, coma. It's pretty, really... And it turns out, in Moria's sex life, she's Leviathan. Oh, man, I thought you were going to, like, say something interesting. What if... What, you really thought from the start where I said Leviathan? I uh, thought... Going somewhere interesting? Comparison. Exactly, yes. Oh, so. no, no, no. That See, Leviathan has nothing interesting to say, so ahead, therefore, I would have nothing interesting so to say. So, what if... And this is something I just came up with right now, so like I'm just throwing it out there to walk through it with you guys. What if Life Six is the far flung, far flung future? If she's in a coma somehow, and her body is put on ice in the same way it was in the apocalypse timeline, and that's allowed the timeline to progress that far, and and then she gets woken up in the future and dies. Huh? Wait, I don't, I don't think so because oh, I I think I you know what I'm saying. I don't know. I don't know that I think that it's just a what if. I don't think so because we're currently in Moira McTaggart's tenth lifetime, right? That's that's pretty in House of X, right? So yes. well, yeah. So this issue ends with Moira McTaggart's ninth life ending a hundred years to the power of X, and that's what's seemingly going to inform our current timeline of events because the whole part where she has Charles read her mind in this 10th lifetime is all, it seems like it's all based on the terrible, terrible things that happened in this 
timeline that is presented in Powers of X, Powers of Ten. Um, for her sixth lifetime to be lived all the way through that future, I don't think makes a ton of sense to inform what's happening now because that was like what five lifetimes ago. She sure. remembers everything. That's 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 not like mm. I don't think that with the way Hickman is presenting this narrative, I don't think it makes sense to draw that out further because that already happened four lifetimes ago. So what do you think the significance of that lifetime is, though? Of this, uh, which of the six? I don't know. So here's the thing, right? I have no idea. The fifth lifetime is where the coma happens. The sixth lifetime is not on the board. So it obviously has to be significant. And I feel like it has to inform what's happening now because Wiles... Why wouldn't we know it otherwise? Sure, I don't know. I, I, it has to be significant. Sure, I, I, I can't answer the question. I just just, just food for thought, you know? Because I think what you're saying is valid, but my counterpoint to that is we're halfway through the event and we don't know what happened there. Sure, yeah. And it's the only thing that's really been presented, sure. I, I don't know. It must mean something. And I, and I don't think the coma is nothing because the end of every other timeline is Moira dies. And in the thing, it says she's in a coma, then the genocide happens. And there's no other information beyond that. And then the sixth life is blank. It's so, got to mean something. So you're thinking that genocide at far away doesn't necessarily mean that Moira dies. I don't think she died there because okay. I think it would say Moira died in the genocide at far away. Okay. Every other conclusion of a timeline is Moira died in, Moira died at, Moira died this way. Yeah. I think that I think that's something worth considering. Although I will say that the CBR article about the the lives says that um, uh, she died in the genocide. I don't, they could be wrong. Yeah, they, I'm just throwing that out. Yeah, 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 that yeah, could yeah. be an assumption. So I, I I'm inclined to take that as an assumption because I haven't seen anything. I read that issue twice over. I don't see anything that says. That she explicitly died there. And I think given the way that Hickman pretty explicitly tells you everything, the fact that he doesn't say she died there leads me to think that there's something not right there. Plus, I think there's the visual clue that, because if you look at the original timeline graphic, both Life 9 and Life 10 have arrows pointing onward to signify that the timeline continues and that there's no information there. On the fifth life with Moira, which has the coma and the genocide, there are those arrows between the coma and the genocide. Not afterwards, but between them. And then life six is blank. So, like, maybe it's just the in-between time that matters and she does die in the genocide. But, like, something happened while she was in a coma. Okay. So, the concrete evidence that we're in life ten is that that current Marvel's Life 10 is in the fact that when they could get the data for the origin of Nimrod and they give it to Moira, Wolverine kills her to send her on her way. So he's sending her on her way to the next life where she can use the information she now knows to their advantage to stop Nimrod. Right. Not from I don't think that their goal is to stop Nimrod from coming online. I think their goal is to kill Nimrod and to know how to do it before he becomes too powerful. Yeah, before he becomes the Nimrod we see in the 100 years timeline. Oh, right. he makes Apocalypse his absolute bitch. That was a really awesome part of the book, by the way, the the, the action. So, I wanted to I wanted to talk about 
the fact that the action in this particular issue is outstanding. Um, we get two concurrent fights. You guys already talked a little bit about them, but uh, the fight with Omega Sentinel is really cool. And that's who it was Omega Sentinel. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I really like that stuff. But getting to see Apocalypse, a character who we normally think about as kind of like larger than life and more than just a a villain, the dark know? side of the X Men, the Thanos of the X Men kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, getting to see him throw down and get thrown down was pretty cool. Yeah, I don't feel like we've ever seen him just get, like, clowned out like that before. He's kind of a jobber. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying. Yeah, okay. You're kind of a jobber. Uh, Daddy was a fall down man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would love, I would pay to see Phil be a jobber. But so I, cool. I, I want to follow the track that I was on a little bit earlier. Uh, so if you think back... I believe it's House of X two. They show that um, there's this this uh, what is it? It's like a a space station or whatever. The, oh, the one that looks like Master Mold's head. Exactly. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So the humans have have come together to build a Master Mold. It's not a Master Mold. It's a Mother Mold. Yeah, that right. was the other. Yeah, key. that was it. Okay. So the theory is this, and I want to hear what you guys have to say. That. Moira McTaggart is the mother mold. How? Whoa. Because in Powers 3, they refer to her as mother. She's mother. She's the other mutant that was on uh, Asteroid K labeled as mother. That's what they talk about. And that's Moira. So now there's something called the mother mold in the very next life. <sighs> Ooh, I don't know what I think about that, but I feel like that's a really solid theory because, again, like that feels like that's the kind of thing that could be a hard read. But it's Hickman, and and I feel like I feel like everything means something. So, like putting those threads together, I'm like that that lines up. That would explain that 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 similarity in the naming and stuff and. Okay, now I I need to take control for one moment because I'm like this is this is where it goes. This is the eventuality. So then, the 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 other part of that theory is that what we're seeing in the one thousand is the librarian is Moira McTaggart, and she wants to ascend that's what she's trying to do that's why the phalanx are there she lured them there so that they could ascend and be taken in to the techno the technocracy and the and and so the way that that makes sense is that if she's mother then she's given up on the idea of making the human and mutant thing work for whatever reason and has decided that just going with the machines is the way to win and I think that it's really interesting that she was learning from Apocalypse and that that was the person who she was messing with because Apocalypse believes in Darwinism, survival of the fittest. So now she realizes the mutants aren't fit for survival, but neither are the humans. And that's why she goes on to join the, the machines and join the and try to join the techno, the technocracy. This uh, this is the most Hickman thing I've heard. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I think this is the most plausible outcome. There you go. We'll see if I, I'm right. I, I think I think that is extremely Jonathan Hickman, and it really ties together with the whole 
Powers of X number or House of X number two thing. So the question for me then becomes, how does that work? Where does that fit in the timeline? And how does this end with a neat little bow and we start making X-Men comics again? It's a great question. Sure is. Can't wait to see what the fuck happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got fucking, what, how many more issues to go? Five? Three of each, right? All right, six. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing about this book that I don't like. I think it's all fantastic. I think if you're not reading this, you really ought to be. It's worth your time. Sleeping on it. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, I Marco legitimately think it. this is 10 out of 10. Like, I'm, I think it's firing on all fucking cylinders, and it's been a good ride. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we're going to we're gonna jump ahead. Uh, this upcoming week, we will be reviewing House 3, so come back for that. Uh, but we're going to get into the news now because there is a lot to talk about, and there is only so little time. Uh, we're going to start with... What I think is an interesting addendum to a conversation that we've been having a lot lately about the industry, the comics industry. And it's actually from an interview that ICV2 did with Eric Stevenson. So you guys will know Eric Stevenson as the publisher of Image. Right. And he talked a lot about, with ICV2, about the state of the industry. And we've been talking about that a lot lately. And I think it's interesting that he's talking about this now in light of how much Dan Didio and Jim Lee have been talking about the same stuff. So I thought it'd be cool to just, you know, kind of bring up a few of his points and see what you guys have to say. So uh, they talked about the, 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 how comics survive and sort of being able to read the trends of why things are where they're at. Uh, so uh, this was this was mentioned in the article, and I'm reading a an article that sort of breaks all this down from comicbook.com. So uh, it was said, earlier in the conversation, there is discussion regarding the current perception of a sales drought in the comics market and the doldrums of past years. When Stevenson points to sales being better today than they were one decade ago, the interviewer, Milton Grip wisely noted that period also corresponds with the largest global recession since the Great Depression. Now, that's an interesting point. But what uh, Stevenson also mentioned was that that was a bad point in general in comics, that that, 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 that New 52 era was actually a down point for comics across the board. And I just thought it was interesting that he sort of put those things together. Um but that things are better now for them and that the reason why there's a perception of things being bad is because we talk about it so much more than we ever did before. Right. Yeah, I don't I I think that's a really valid point that like 10 years ago I don't think the conversation around comics was the same as it is right now. Mm, yeah. You know, 2009 comic books were in a way different place. Yeah, absolutely. Um shit, I mean like 10 years ago I wasn't reading comics. Right, like, like it kind of made a a thing where other people entered with different sort of ideas, and and obviously that brings a mixed bag of things. But you know, yeah, I also think that the the interviewer is wise to bring up the global recession as a talking point. But I I that's always an interesting conversation because um, I think the conventional wisdom is that during a recession. 
you know, uh, expenditures like art are um, kind of superfluous. Yeah. And that they're they're the first thing to go. But that's not always the case. Um, During major recessions and stuff like that, you often still see, you know, um, patronage of art Mm -hmm. at a high because people need escapism when times are tough. And, you know, you know, it was a the second worst recession in our country's history. So I think, yeah, people were kind of running to art at that time. Yeah. Um, so interesting point. I thought he also made an interesting point about uh, co- comic book sales and the ebbs and flows of, of that. So he mentioned specifically how at around that same time you had New 52, you also had Marvel Now. And that those were these huge, big things for both companies that did bring in a lot of attention and a lot of buzz. And that led to a lot of sales. But those sales went away pretty quick. And that when those things happen, everybody feels it. Mm. Yeah. Right? Because if Marco walks into a comic book shop because of Marvel now, but he sees Criminal on on the rack as well, he's like, oh, man, let me buy this. And the Marvel thing got him in the door, and then he also bought the image thing. But if the Marvel thing now isn't interesting, now Marco isn't coming around. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that speaks to the kind of perpetual problem the American comics market suffers that we always talk about that. I think even among a lot of comics fans, the perception is that comics are Marvel in DC. And Mm -hmm. even if you read other stuff, a lot of times that's the marquee shit that gets you in the door. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think also... It also like from the publisher perspective of, okay, I'm releasing this book and you're going to want to see sales, you know, immediately. Right. But a lot of times, you know, the first issue, you see a huge drop off at an issue two, Right. And so people start to misinterpret that information and that sales information to, to be like, oh, we have the, you know, we have the audience here. We can, we can hit these people. And then the next issue drops and it's like oh my god it's like less than half and then that even continues to fall and then all of a sudden it's canceled right because there's no foresight to like but wait you have to give it a space and then just let it breathe Mm -hmm. and let it be what it is and you have to understand that it's a long tail sort of model and not so like week to week even if it is being released week to week i feel like that's a reason you've seen image find a lot of success yeah is that a lot of times their books don't necessarily connect Mm-hmm. During the first run, right. But when the volume comes out, yes, exactly. People pick it up, and then they get turned on to it, and then all of a sudden it's a hit. Yep. And there, I think there are a lot of books that Image does that have had really soft sales that ended up becoming kind of sleeper hits or like you know to find their audience because they're given enough room to breathe. And you don't really have that same luxury at Marvel or DC. You know, like if your book isn't connecting, like. It's going to get the axe. Right. Yeah. Uh, sort of bolstering that point, he said something that we've been saying on this show for a while, which is there are a lot of people doing strong work, but I don't think there's a lot that is exciting people. It hmm. says something when the end of a long running series is a source of big excitement in the marketplace. So he's referring to the end of The Walking Dead. Yeah. And how that's such a huge seismic shift. For the industry, when you're talking about a book that's not going to make more money as a as an ongoing product. Yeah. Right. That's wild. Um, 
And I, and I think it's a point that, that should be noted. I think it's a really strong point, too, that I really hadn't thought about. That comics... It, I feel like it's been a while since there's been something that feels really innovative or disruptive. Yeah. Mm. You know? And we did our whole episode on the legacy of The Walking Dead. And I think the reason it was such a phenomenon was because it was different. And it ushered in a new era of, you know, indie books with with the that new wave of image stuff but like that's old news now that happened like five years ago you know when we had that second image boom post walking dead's mainstream breakthrough you know mm. and how many books have come out of that how many of these pocket publishers have we seen come up yeah. that are doing the same exact shit you know and like even if it's great even if it's all great like is it new is it fresh is it the thing that's going to catch headlines and really like blow people's hair back like Maybe is not. Gonna, is it going to land you a movie deal? Yeah. So another point that he made uh, is is one where he talked about the price of individual comics and said that they're too expensive. Yeah, dude. Yeah, they really are. And we, and that's a tough place to be right. because I think if they're ch- they can't be cheaper. Yeah, I think they can. They, I, w- in the state that they are in, in terms of quality and in terms of printing... No, probably not. But in, but they can definitely get cheaper. Different kind of paper, different kind of coloring, different kind of... Uh, I don't know how it impact the sort of production line aspect of it, but it can. I think there's ways to, to cut on pricing. And uh, I think the core issue there is uh, diamonds. It, it, it's the distributor. That's fair. So he elaborates, and I think it's worth adding his elaboration to the to the argument because he's he's talking about trades and how people who wait for the trade in a lot of ways hurt books and they don't realize that they're doing that because a lot of times a book will get canceled, you know, three, four issues in and all the people who are waiting for the trade, you know, now they, you know, they come in and they buy the trade of that book, but that book is gone already. You know, trades take a while to come out. Some books don't even make it to the point where they could fill the full trade because mm, right. that's six issues typically. Some books are canceled before that. And if you were waiting for, you know, uh, Miss Marvel Volume 3, not that that's a book that's struggling or whatever, but if you were waiting for that to hit trade before you picked it up, you might have actually hurt the sales. But this is what he says. So he says, people complain about people waiting for the trade. And we're begging them to wait for the trade. If you give somebody six pieces of a story priced at four or five dollars a piece, and then you can get this trade over here for a comparable or cheaper price, why would you buy this thing? Instead, get this complete story over here. To make matters worse, this probably isn't a complete story. This is just a bigger piece of a bigger story. The reason why periodical comics worked was the same reason serials work on TV. You want to get people to come back every time. The way you get them is to come back is you give them enough of a satisfying story with a hook to come back for more. Now that doesn't seem to be how things are constructed. Everything is written for the trade. There are a lot of things where people think that if it doesn't do well on a single issue, it'll be collected as a trade and then magically it's going to become a success. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen a whole lot of instances where that actually happens. It's like conventional wisdom is things just sell better as trades. It's like, no, not necessarily. I so two things on that. The 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 first thing I want I want to go back to was he. I, I think in terms of sales again, like to my earlier point, people look at it in a 
too too short of a time frame, which that I think is the actual impact in terms of uh, getting people to to the trade, right? Because if if you're canceling a book where that maybe there is hype and maybe there is at least um, some people buying it, maybe it's not making you the kind of money that you had expected or projected or whatever, but you you still have it out there. People are still aware that it's there. And we don't have. We also always make the comment of like, "Oh, look, another fucking book gets canceled. Now we're not going to see the story, et cetera, et cetera." Right. And then that, if that doesn't get collected, then that it inherently is affecting the that uh, series getting collected into a trade and then potentially being becoming a sale, right? So like, if if you change the way that you look at success in the industry, I think that might also help inform the way that you're actually publishing the books to a way that. Or in a way that can start helping your bottom line. I think there's also something to be said. I haven't really thought about this in this way before until he made this com- comment. But you know, he's he's talking about how asking someone to buy individual issues is is kind of a shitty value prop. Mm. Like you're asking a reader to buy, say say it's an image book and it's five issues. For the first volume, right? Five issues at four bucks a pop, you know, that versus all of them in one volume for 10. And I think that in and of itself is not a great deal, right? Um, but it's even worsened, I think, by the fact that the way that people consume content is changing a lot. And I, I think I don't know that other industries have been as quick to adapt to how much Netflix style like yes, binging yes. shit has changed the marketplace. Mm-hmm. I think there's a way bigger expectation nowadays to want to be able to consume something and excuse me, get the whole package as it were rather than a cereal. I think that's, that's like what a lot of people do now. Yeah. And a, like, I think of even like I, I talked, uh, you know, um, a lot on social media about how I got into Barry, which is an HBO show. And I had heard it was great for like two seasons in a row. And it wasn't until it had already been like finished. And I was like, all right, cool. Like I'll watch it now and I can just get through the whole thing. You know, or, like I watched all of the boys in it like a day, you know. And I, I think that people's attitudes towards consuming content are changing and asking people to spend four bucks on one fifth of one fifth of a story is a tough sell, yeah. and I, and I also think that a lot of comics don't benefit from the pacing of month to month. You know, we've talked a lot about how great it is that we have powers and house week every single week, and how that's really benefiting the way the story is unfolding for us. And you look at that versus our reading experience with like Doomsday Clock, which we've really been enjoying, but and we've. You know, you're talking about it over a longer period of time. Like, there's something to be said for that too. But I, the hype around it is different. Yeah. You know. Well, I, sorry. I I just I want to I want to point out a couple of things. So first, he's making the argument that the price is too high. Right. So that yeah. four dollar price point is too much. It's too much yeah. in his mind. So it wouldn't be you know charging you a higher price point than if you were to just wait and buy it in a trade in under in his mind. 
It should be the opposite. That's what he suggests. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. So then, but the other thing is that when you're talking about the comparison between like uh, what Hickman is doing, Doomsday Clock, and then you know regular comics, you're, you're you're comparing events to not events. That's true, and that's a big issue as well because events are naturally going to be more interesting on their face. The and and then Doomsday Clock, there's no difference at, literally at all between Doomsday Clock and Watchmen. In terms of how it was, how it's being produced. And Watchmen was a big success. And we talk about that the way we talk about it. So I think Doomsday Clock is a little bit of a different standard. Well, I think the Watchmen comparison is interesting, though, because I think that attitudes are different. Because, like, think about, like, how we talked about Snotgirl, like, last week or whatever. Mark was like, oh, yeah, like, I haven't been reading. Like, I'll get it eventually. And I think about that, like, I think, or, like, Saga, is a book that we all enjoy mm-hmm. and how many of us were month to month concurrent with it versus buying it every month and then reading a few at a time when you were ready to sit down and read it. Maybe so, but Saga's super popular. Right. So like, but I think that's because how that's how comics are sold. I think that like keeping the hype every single month is tough. I, I, I think there's, there's a reality in that selling the floppies may also just be inefficient, right? Because you, when when you're doing things in bulk, you you have cheaper costs, right? So that means when you the things that you charge, uh, broken out individually, cost more collectively than when you would ultimately grab it in one, right? So you buy whatever one single catch-up thing is like three bucks, but you buy ten, it's like fifteen, right? Mm-hmm. So that's something that is that happens. Um, in the comics industry, which is, I think the most detrimental to people not picking it up and waiting for the trade, right? Like the a hundred percent, it is, it is the price um, that people are most sensitive about. And like, sometimes I, I, I do it for a book where it's maybe like a couple more pages. Um, and, but they're still asking for like five bucks. And it's like, no dude, like you, you can still provide, you should still be able to provide it at a value that I can afford. That isn't that right. Um, and then I, I was also just going to say, uh, I think it that speaks to maybe a potential like optimization in the industry, and in that rather than continue to fight where it's most cost effective as a publisher and as a distributor, lean into that. Right? If if it's cheaper to sell it as a trade, and people are already waiting for the trade, just treat it like a book. Maybe don't serialize it. Maybe collectively as the uh, as the industry can move into towards that way and eventually find those like cost efficiencies the industry so you're suggesting not releasing floppies basically or like the ones that, that you not have, for every book not right? for every book like maybe it's not as cost effective to do that i think that the industry would have a hard time dealing with the loss of so many weekly books. But see, I don't think they will because to Pete's point on the way that people are consuming media now, more so, right? Collectively, you have to also be able to address the fact that people are binging, 100%. That's 100% the reason that more, that potentially even like the book industry, the book industries come back because people... Yeah, like why we're seeing that increase. Right, because people are, are, are used to that, that content now visually being collected in these longer series or being able to, to be accessible all at once. And comics have the flexibility to do either one. But if the market itself overall outside of comics is shifting that way, comic it would be, in my opinion, foolish to not do that. 
and to even though the industry might not necessarily like that if it's going to survive is that a reality that it has to face to fight off any stagnation or decrease yeah but marco the one trade is oftentimes more than the cost of one person's netflix account so you can't get away from the fact that comics are expensive people no, are able to binge, it's- would people would people binge watch or binge would people binge watch if they had to pay money for each individual series versus a subscription service repeat that okay so if you had to like let's say netflix wasn't a subscription service it was out let's say net yeah if you wanted to watch house of cards daredevil whatever 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 you paid for the individual series would people still watch television or netflix the way that they do that's a great point that the idea that you have to the buy reason we binge series. is because you have a pass to everything but then but then it comes down to are you going to buy the season pass for the show or you're gonna pay per episode, and what does what what usually comes out cheaper? If yeah, the cost the, value is still there. Right. I, I think what Sean is saying is valid. That the reason binge culture is so popular is because Netflix is like pervasive in the way it is and everything. But to counter that point, net I don't think that Netflix would be less popular if they had had Daredevil or House of Cards or whatever be on a traditional television model where it was like once a week an episode came out. I think the game-changing nature of the binge is that putting everything out at once makes it a moment in time where it's an event and you checked it out and it was a thing. And you're right, though, that like comics are still different because it is more like a book than in the way that Marco described it, and books aren't super popular either. And on top of that, comics are events, and comic book readers... Comic book events that are events do well right because comic book readers are used to that and they feel epic even though they're spread out over time so it's the same thing as watching everyone sitting at their television to watch the sopranos there's no difference the difference is that to watch the sopranos it's free in the sense that you're paying for one subscription that gets you access to not only that show but everything else that hbo has whereas if you want to read doomsday clock every single month you have to pay five or six dollars, whatever Doomsday Clock costs, to keep up with the story. Collectively, each of us who's paid for an issue or who's paid so far for House and Powers has has paid five dollars every single time. Yeah. That's a lot of money. There's been six issues already and there's six more. Right. Comic books are extremely expensive. And if Netflix operated in the same exact way, they would not be Netflix because nobody would do that. I think the other problem too is that like uh, comics are not a great um, value for how much time you get out of them either. Because, like, I think the sure. only other uh, form of entertainment that's even remotely comparable in price is like if you actually buy music, and mm. music is way like you buy if you buy an album or you buy a song, you might listen to it a hundred times, you know. Whereas, like, how many times are you realistically going to read that issue of? House or Powers, like maybe two or three times if you're like a really avid reader and you want to drink it in, you know, like, and how long did it take you to read that issue? Like maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you know, like on top of that, an an album of songs probably costs less on average than one trade of a a comic book. Depending on how long the book is, right? Like, I 
I, I, I feel like we need to move on. Yeah. But this is a really interesting topic, and I wanted to include it because I think that Eric Stevenson added such an interesting wrinkle, and it shows us that everybody's thinking about the same stuff. Yeah. All of these people are, are, are concerned. I did just want to make a note. Uh, in our conversation with um, Darren from uh, Ahoy Comics, we, we do talk about how like they are trying to provide extra value. Um, so in the back of the books, they have uh, like crossword puzzles. They have little games and activities, uh, pros. It's not just you know the story adds and then it ends. Um, in addition to like the letter section, they have a lot more stuff to, to, to bring back like that. backup stories and right, stuff too. Right, exactly to 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 be to provide that value because you know exactly to to Eric Stevenson's point, it's, you have to be able to provide that value and and they're sort of approaching it from a a magazine standpoint, right. less so that comic standpoint. So I just thought it was interesting as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think we'll 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 have this conversation again because it's it's something that the whole industry is talking about. So uh, it'll come up for us again. But we need to get into the D twenty three news because there's a lot of huge stuff that came up from that. And then we're gonna jump into Spider Man. So uh, stick with us here. There's a lot to talk about, and we're gonna we're gonna kick things off D D twenty three wise with I th- I think this is probably the bit of news that has everybody uh, most excited, which is that we learned that Kit Harrington is joining the MCU. We learned that information on Friday with no context as to what he would be doing. And so speculation was running rampant. He could be Namor. He could be Wolverine. You know, tons of different names were thrown around. No one said that. (laughs) I heard it. No one said that. Uh, Well, as of Saturday, we actually know who he'll be playing. And I think it'll surprise you. He's he's going to be playing Black Knight. Who? The Black Knight, Dane Whitman. He's an eternal. He's a great in, in the Lake Eternals. Avenger. Yeah, that and, is true. <laughs> and that's the interesting thing. He's playing him in the Eternals, but um, I mean, unless someone knows more about Black Knight than me here, which is very possible, I'm pretty sure he's not an Eternal. He sure isn't. Yeah, absolutely not. He's a regular. I have no idea about the Eternals, and I only know Black Knight because he was a Great Lakes Avenger. So I wasn't familiar, but that's interesting. I'll put it this way: there is no Avenger that's an Eternal. Okay. Uh, Except oh. now they're elevated. He's now an Eternal. They're clearly doing new shit. Interesting wrinkle. They're yeah, doing their own thing. Yeah, Hercules is in that movie. Hercules isn't an Eternal. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think this that that gives me the idea that this movie is going to be a lot bigger than I at least was anticipating, and they mm-hmm. have talked about how it will sp- span thousands of years. That's yeah, cool. So um, it's going to be a throw ride, I think. Yo, it was funny, man. I saw this tweet. Uh, like right, it was like when um, somebody tweeted out the Hollywood Reporter article or whatever that was talking about Ken Harrington like being rumored to be in the MCU, and one of the top comments was. Uh, Nick Fury asks Kit Harrington, Harrington to be an Avenger, and Kit goes, I don't want it. <laughs> the, the one that I liked was, um, uh, <laughs> oh my God, what was it? It was to have Kit Harrington in Thor Love and Thunder so that whenever anyone questioned or asked anything about Valkyrie, who was you know, Tessa Thompson, yeah, all yeah. Kit could say is, she's our queen. oh there's definitely gonna be a red wedding am i right guys oh uh any thoughts about hot pop culture reference phil Uh any thoughts about kit harrington's addition to the mcu this is cool i I, i'm a big fan of kit harrington um i liked game of thrones quite a bit um despite you know not necessarily sticking the landing and uh i think kit harrington's a good actor and the 
the the thing that you always worry about, right? When you have somebody who's like a relative unknown or like an unknown actor who plays a big pop culture character is that they're going to get typecast and they're going right. to struggle to find roles afterwards. And the fact that he's already, you know, getting a role in the MCU and everything. I'm glad to see that. I like the guy a lot. I hope he has a long career ahead of him. And, you know, he's done a lot of great work, so I don't see why he wouldn't nail this. Frankly, he's a real bastard. Uh, upon finding out what character he's playing, I no longer have interest. <laughs> <laughs> don't know anything about this character, Marco. That's exactly why I lost interest. That's just be interested like in Kit Harrington, bro. Let, let me. Maybe I can entice you. Maybe because I, I I know a little bit about the Black Knight. Okay. So he's actually kind of interesting because he has something called the Ebon Blade, and the Ebon Blade is the weapon that he uses to be the Black Knight, but it kills you, like it it sucks your soul from you. Um, and so he's caught in this battle between wanting to do the right thing and use the weapon to do that, but it taking his essence away from him as he does it. All right. All right. Give it's it a shot, shot man. Yeah, I'll give it a shot. I am a little disappointed he's not playing Wolverine. I don't think he would have been a good Wolverine. Dude, he'd be so perfect. He's short. He's but, fuzzy. He Yeah, he looks a little bit like him. That's it. Man, you don't get to have an opinion on him. You watched like one episode of Game of Thrones. I watched a season and a half. Yeah, and in that he's like 19 years old. You didn't even see him do anything. Uh, he whines a lot. Because he's 19. Uh, he's a bastard. There you go. All right, so <laughs> that was that. We don't have a long wait to see what Kid Harrington brings because we're going to get that movie, I believe, in 2020. Yeah. So uh, right around the corner... We also, get him, Kit. we also got some news about a few other Disney Plus shows. They actually announced three new Disney Plus shows. Man so, thing? No. All right. <laughs> I think all three of these are series that people have wanted. So we got She-Hulk. Oh. oh I didn't know that one. Attorney at Law. Moon Knight. Oh, hell yeah. That's where Ooh. I'm at. And Miss Marvel. Ooh, that's a lot of fun. Oh, that's going to be cool. All good. And actually, I saw uh, Declan Chavi shared it, but the Moonlight logo looks like their logo, so I'm hoping they're pulling from that shit because that's the good shit. I mean, if he shared it, like... Or the the, the Jeff Lemire stuff, that's cool. Well, Declan wasn't on that book, though. He was on oh, no, Smallwood. You're yep. so right. You know, I'm wow. always right. Wow. Anyway. Fake fan. <laughs> hey! <laughs> Fucking fake nerd boy. Um, Yeah, that Moon Knight uh, show is something I've wanted to see uh, since Daredevil because it fits right in there. Yeah. Um, 100%. Yeah. So, yo, will you now purchase a Disney Plus subscription? At least for a month. Do you, do you, Tight. Uh, will it be rated R, you think? No. Moon Knight. Will, will it, will it no. have Daredevil esque or levels of? I know yes. that's 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 that's, yes? that's that's the question. I think yeah, actually, yeah? because the other big, like the number, the first marquee Disney Plus show is the fucking Mandalorian. Yeah, and I'm sure that's going to be violent. I don't know how violent though. I keep people. I keep hearing people say, and this is all hearsay, that uh, the more adult themed properties owned by Disney is going to go on Hulu. Yeah. Oh. Uh. Hmm. But Daredevil was Daredevil R rated? No, it I, it would have been though. Maybe. In, yeah. In, oh yeah. Because Kingpin like smashes the guy's decapitates a dude's <laughs> yeah. head with a door. Oh. There's that scene where what's his name? Uh, he says 
Fisk's name, and he's like, I'm dead, and he goes and fucking impales his head on a spike and shit. Like, Daredevil gets violent. Dude, the (laughs) first episode is him fucking beating the shit out of a bunch of guys trying to sex traffic a bunch of people. (laughs) So it's like, that shit, it goes there. (laughs) All right, so maybe it won't be Daredevil level, but I think... I think it'll be like that, though. Daredevil-ish. Yeah. I hope he goes after that fucking nerd Dracula. (laughs) Oh yeah, that was funny stuff. <laughs> That's fucking good, man. But yeah, dude, I I hope that I get my She-Hulk courtroom drama now. That's all I want. Yo, that'd be really. I I would be into that. That'd be very interesting. That's, That's that would be great. Gimmick, dog. Is it really? Uh-huh. <gasps> she's a lawyer. Yeah. It's oh, like, I know she's a lawyer, but I wasn't sure if it's like that was her. Oh, big time. A lot of her. Just like her, a lot of her, her books thing. are more funny oriented. Oh, it's her in really? the court. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. So Sean and I talked about this. Two weeks ago or whatever, when we were talking about the ABC show about that was like a they're gonna do a show about a female character, and I was yeah, like, yeah. "Give me a fucking She-Hulk show." And then here we are, man. Like, I'm I'm excited. That could be cool. Uh, Moon Knight and this Jeff Goldblum thing, whatever that is. <laughs> those are like Disney Plus cool. things I'm in for. But it, it's got me. I'll I'll yeah. get a month. I love 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 She-Hulk, and uh, she was one of the standout characters from uh, Civil War. Uh, Frontline, mm. and her role there was pretty cool. I I think she's she's more of a fun character, um, in a lot of ways, and seeing her antics will be cool. But I have the same problem with this show that I have with Miss Marvel, uh, and unfortunately, I'm not over the moon excited about these shows. And the reason is because the context for their characters isn't well enough established right now. So Miss Marvel in the comics is a, a fan of Captain Marvel, and she's inspired by Captain Marvel to become a superhero. So without that context, what? Why would she even be called Miss Marvel? Wait, that, what? That, that's amazing. No, think about it. In the MCU, right? You are. She would be that kid who grew up and is now like that age, and it's like, yo, I wish I could be whatever. That's. I feel like that's the perfect. Uh, segue into that next wave right because you've had everybody who's grown up with it or has been growing up with it and you have the next wave of people who it it's always just been a thing for them right and are now used to superheroes and can maybe mirror themselves in a miss marvel or, or somebody like that and being represented that way yeah and i think that's great but my question is how does she how does she get to even become that without her inspiration well i mean I, I don't think that there's any reason that captain marvel can't be her inspiration just because yeah i like and i, I get no one knows her i get what you're saying but mm-hmm. I, I she's, she's not, not like a, a she's not a known hero in the mcu yet didn't she come back and a lot of shit yeah but the average person doesn't know there's no there's no footage said. of that right yeah like we we watched it but humans didn't watch that like humans like it's like the whole scene with uh, how the kids know who hulk is but they don't know who Ant-Man is um, but I, I could have swore that the, the little girl in Captain Marvel was going to be Miss Marvel or something. You know what I'm saying? Oh well, she she actually grows up. She's oh um, right, yeah. she's yeah. shield agent. She's she's no, she's Pulsar. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Monica Monica Ram- Rambeau. Yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry. But I I feel like it could be, and granted, it could be Captain Marvel too. Maybe answers this question in some way, but um. It could easily be something like when she does return to Earth, like she hangs around long enough for like cleanup or something and she helps Kamala in like a small town kind of way, like picks a fucking piece of 
plaster up and she's trapped under the rock and she sees her as this, you know, cool hero or whatever. You know, like, I feel like there's a way you write, you can write that and make it make sense, even with the context that, you know, Brie Larson's Captain Marvel isn't as famous in the MCU as, like, Spider-Man or Captain America or whoever. Maybe. Uh, in any event, I, I really always loved that element of her character because it does create that bridge, like Marco kind of said, mm-hmm. between generations. And so if they don't utilize that or they utilize it in a way that doesn't feel real, that'll be troubling. But Did they say when it's coming out? No, no. We don't even we don't know a single thing about any of these. So I think there's a there's a chance maybe these are far enough away that it yeah. makes sense. Yeah, if that's time. if that's the case, then it's weird that they would announce these shows or this show if it's supposed to come out during phase five mm-hmm. and announce it now. That's weird. Yeah, that's true. Um but then the other thing with She Hulk, right, is that the Hulk as of now, we don't know anything about his family or 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 anything like that. And the way that she becomes She-Hulk is convoluted, and that's kind of a thing that has to unfold. So, yeah. uh, how do they bridge that gap? I guess that would be that would be the show would be her origin. I guess, mm-hmm. uh, and that that's a cool way to keep the Hulk in in the mix, and maybe She-Hulk can take over for the Hulk on screen since he lost his arm, or you know he has like a weak arm right now. Um, I could see that, but you know, again, on the surface. Without the introduction, I'm not super excited for that. There's big questions to be answered to make these things work, considering yeah. those two characters are so tied to existing characters. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I trust, though. I trust I trust Feige and Co. to get it right. Yeah. And then the, other, the only other Disney Plus news that I wanted to mention was that Anthony Mackie said that he won't be playing Captain America on the falcon and winter soldier show he said he is the falcon and will always be the falcon when asked if he would be uh suiting up as captain america the implication in endgame at the end is that he would become captain america but he's saying that that's not what's happening he's lied before he very well could be lying now um, You're a liar, Anthony Mackie. Oh, Did, didn't we get the Addie, synopsis bro. that part of the plot is the government not wanting him to be capped? Oh, that was right, that yeah. was not uh, that was not an official. Oh no! Synopsis. No. Okay. Oh, come on, comic journalists. Pete and Bessie's a liar. Yeah, I'm just hearing. I'm just you know. It's what I heard. My ear to the ground. You know. The the the, the, the other thing though is that this show will <laughs> actually include U.S. Agent. Yeah. I really love U.S. Agent. I'm not familiar. Really? Mm-mm. I don't think so. Nice. U.S. agent is like the government. the The government has their own, you know. He's yeah, the government America, stooge. But he's a stooge. Yeah, he's not. Uh, wow. Yeah, he's that's not. That's tough. cool. Yeah, he's he's like the Captain America, like Bizarro or Venom. Yeah, yeah. He's like the anti. I don't think I've ever heard of him. That's he's cool. reverse Cap, dog. That's fucked. That's <laughs> fucked up. Look yeah. him up. Like, look up a picture of him. It's what's, Captain, what's, what's his name? U.S. US agent. agent. It's Captain America, but he wears black. He fights for the liberties of the uh, bourgeois. Of corporate corporations. Corporate America. <laughs> Yo, I love how, like, my Google knows that I'm such a fucking dork that when I typed U.S. agent, it said U.S. agent, Marvel Comics. Uh, yeah. Search nice. engine, baby. They know me. Yeah. So. Oh! Yo, this looks a lot like the the Punisher costume. You know, oh, like that—that that was sure. in uh, Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom. Yeah, yeah. The Punisher cap, <laughs> like that, uh, bleeds through like a video game reference. Well, U.S. Agent was actually in uh, Marvel Superheroes, the video That's game. That's right. 
Yeah. Oh, for real? Yep. Yeah. Uh, he's in he's in Marvel vs. Capcom one. That's what I'm that's what I mean. He looks like a dick. He is. Yeah. <laughs> that's the Love whole this point. Guy, dude. Yeah. Awesome. I'm oh, excited for him. Man, Robert Redford's gonna make his own evil cap. Is somebody playing him? Do we know? No, that's too soon. Uh actually I feel like we do know. Uh Ooh. it's yeah. it's Kip Kip Kipperson, the guy from Game of Thrones. Okay. Who the heck is Kip Kip Kipperson? No, he isn't. <laughs> <laughs> He's the bastard. Kip, 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 Just don't pay Kip, attention Kip, Kip, to John him. Snow. John Snow. It's no. not John Snow. Okay, hold. The, oh, hold it's the guy. It's the guy who plays Ramsey Bolton. They're bringing him back after Inhumans. Battle of the Bastards. Let's do it. That would be strange. Battle of the Inhumans. <laughs> I don't know what that is. So, <laughs> uh, so he, he will be played by Wyatt Russell. Uh, he acted in Overlord, which was made by J.J. Abrams. Okay. Yeah. So that's we, pretty cool, man. Yeah. This guy looks soft. Let me see. <laughs> U.S. agent. Let me see. That doesn't look like the U.S. agent. I know. That's a bootleg. He looks like Draco Malfoy. Looks like that. <laughs> <laughs> that kid, whatever his name is. So I that think kid, I'm. He's probably a 35 year old man now. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I think I'm ready to talk about Spider-Man. What? <sighs> okay. Huh? Are you guys ready to talk about Spider-Man? As ready as Spider-Man. I'll ever be, Sean. We are Venom. Dun-dun-dun. So this is the this is the big talk of the week, of course. There's nothing happening that is bigger than this. Uh at at Swamp Thing's canceled, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Swamp Thing is out of the DC universe. I'm so glad you brought that up, Marco. And I'm going to expose you right now. Since you chose to make a joke and a mockery out of what I'm trying to do here, I'm I'm going to take you to task. Shit, dude. Swamp Thing actually ended. It did. Two or three weeks ago. It did. And you have not come on to this podcast to comment about the ending. So my question mm-hmm. is, did you even watch it? I did. And at the end, uh, there was an extra scene after the credits where they actually reveal uh, Woodrue. So my prediction for where they were going with the story, all that turned out uh, to be true. And it was really, really cool. Really good makeup. Um, and I'm upset that they're not going to pursue this because that next arc would have been fucking crazy that's where the violence starts to come in and i'm upset i'm upset too he's really fired up i'm sorry for you well it sucked it was, oh, it was so good that last scene oh fucking good <laughs> all right <laughs> chill out <laughs> uh no cool. glad, glad we got that update from you how you didn't give that to us ages ago is beyond me but they don't Marco let me talk have to the, talk they don't let me talk in the show this is the marco episode I think. oh oh Ah, damn it. It's an He's audio. He's just dancing. It's an like, audio format. It's an audio podcast. God. The sound engineer doesn't understand that you guys can't see <laughs> what he's doing with his body. Oh, my God. All right. Jesus. You guys are just any, delaying the inevitable it, it, of me having to be sad. In any event, August 20th, which will be known forevermore. The day that A died. day that will live in infamy. Yes. <laughs> a day that will live in infamy. Deadline reporter Mike Fleming wrote the article with the title Disney Sony standoff ends Marvel Studios and Kevin Feige's involvement in Spider-Man. Now, I mentioned earlier that I called this and I I did. Uh in fact in episode wow. Yes, I had to. Uh in episode <laughs> 103 of the Comics Pals. Fuck. We talked about 
what was going what I thought was going to happen with Spider-Man and broke down the information that we have based on the Sony hacks. Shit, wait, what episode is this? 148? That's almost a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Sean's a fucking wizard. <laughs> so I was on Team Sean on this one. Thank you. You don't get to just nobody cares. <laughs> I care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I, I don't I don't say that strictly to toot my horn. I say that because there's a lot of context for this conversation that you won't have if you don't listen to that episode. And I'm not going to rehash it all. But I, I will add the just the general idea because I think it is important and worth it to say. You could say that this is, you know, the prequel episode. Uh, you know, it, it fills in that 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 gap of what happened a hundred years later in this episode. There you go. Uh, that this is the this is what power power two, yeah. This is the power to two yeah. of Spider Man saga. Well, because of how many Spider Man movies. Shut up, Phil. No, I don't want to hear it. Just let Sean tell the sad news. There's been so many Spider Man movies. This is Spider Man of the Fourth Power. Fucking nice. Jesus. Fourth Life. All right. <laughs> wow. I was Uncle Ben dying this one, Phil. Uh, I don't know. I, I can't answer. I'll have to wait and see. She, got, she gets shot out of a cannon by Aunt May. <laughs> <laughs> they, throw, they throw him in a pot of boiling water. <laughs> some, That's sick. Some Looney Tunes variation in every, <laughs> every life. So is that how Spider Ham's Uncle Ben? <laughs> so I, I want to add. I want to add the context, and the context is this: the deal between Marvel and Sony, or Disney and Sony, I suppose, was that Sony would pay the costs to make Spider-Man movies. Marvel would have creative control to create the story and everything else for the Spider-Man movies. And that would allow them to use Spider-Man in a certain amount of their own movies. It was a five-picture deal or a six-picture deal because it's two Spider-Man, two Avengers Civil War, and uh, an unknown title, right? So it's a six-picture deal. Five, sorry, go ahead, Pete. Wouldn't that also include... Because it's two Avengers movies and Civil War. Two Avengers, Civil War, two Spider-Man. That's right, five. That's five. So there's one. So there's this, it's a six-picture deal. Got it. So Marvel made five percent of whatever the movies made. That was all they got. And then the toy rights, they get every dime that's made off of Spider-Man toy Damn. selling. Any that's theirs. All money that comes from it, aside from like ticket sales and DVD distribution, goes to Disney. Right. So huh. that's a pretty clean cut deal now where it gets interesting is in the fact that it's six pictures not five because the deal would end after the fifth picture the deal for the deal between marvel and sony is just the five movies but tom holland the actor actually owes sony another movie and so my theory and this is not something that i came up with on my own or anything check out Midnight's Edge. They did a great coverage of this whole deal and broke it down really excellently. And they're still talking about this now. Um, so the idea is that they would they would break up the relationship between themselves and, and Disney and use Tom Holland to make one more Spider-Man movie with him at the helm to trick people into thinking that it was a Marvel movie, not a Sony movie, and ride the wave of success. Now, since that happened, since that theory came out, right, Venom was a massive hit. Venom made $856 million. That's insane. What? 
You guys ever see uh, Chappelle's show where they they give black people the reparations and they're all rich? And one <laughs> black dude comes driving his truck and he's like, I'm rich, biash, and he honks yeah. the horn. Okay, so if you think about that Venom gif, <laughs> Venom honking the horn. <laughs> that's Amy Pascal. <laughs> that, no, that's Venom. <laughs> We're rich, <laughs> biash. <laughs> so, that's funny. So... Venom was a massive success, and that opened the floodgates for Sony's ability to make these movies. Also, since then, Far From, or not Far From Home, Into the Spider-Verse was a success. Oh, that's right. It got an Oscar, right? Yep. Yep. And uh, it was beloved, you know? So then, Far From Home, biggest Spider-Man movie of all time. So Spider-Man hasn't ever actually been bigger than he is right now when it comes to these films. So what does Sony say? Oh, okay. We'll take Spider-Man back now that you guys polished him up again. We'll put him with Venom, who just made almost a billion. And we'll, we'll, we can make billions for ourselves now. Thanks a lot. That's the theory. Now, I want to address really fast the Deadline article. And then I want you guys to comment on the face of this thing. Because it's so deep and I have so many things to bring up and talk about. So on the face of this thing... Disney wanted more money. They, they Right now, they make 5%. The deadline article says that they wanted a 50-50 split of the money. That's not true. It was lower. It was actually a 30%, 30-70 uh, that they asked Damn, for. That's still a lot. They asked, yes. Yeah, so they it's asked still, for, still a tough one. They asked for a 25% bump on that. And then um, also, they wanted to co-finance the movies by putting 50% of the money into the picture sony right now puts 100 percent of the money into the into the making of the movie mm. so they wanted to share the cost but also reap the benefits sure right okay so that is something that sony not only turned down but according to reports didn't even offer a counter offer yeah wow. and so neither side was willing to come down and then c- communication broke down to the point where we're now reading these headlines so on on the face what are the thoughts it's it's a good day. Uh, I'm I'm obviously disappointed by this news. Um, you know, I think, and I said in our Far From Home review that uh, I really liked the direction that we were moving. Yeah. Finally, because I think you know, despite the fact that I I really enjoyed Homecoming, um, I'm not. I don't I don't think that the criticisms of some of the choices that they made for Spider Man are unfounded. You know. Um, but I felt like Far From Home in the kind of aftermath of Endgame, it was moving Peter away from being, you know, Tony Stark's ward and kind of coming into his own and the setup of kind of, um, you know, that end point of J. Jonah and the city against him and, you know, Spider-Man in that kind of classic position that we know him in so well, I was really excited to see where that was going to go. And I, I thought that um, that Far From Home in particular was was really, really good and really enjoyable. Yeah. So um, even for the things that I thought they got wrong, I, I liked that their, their Spider-Man felt familiar in ways that were important, but fresh in ways that made it not boring for me as someone that's so familiar with the character. So I'm sad that we're not going to get to see that come to a natural end point. I think it's going to be really fucking awkward considering how pivotal 
they've kind of woven him into the center of the MCU and now they're going to just have to like write him out or ignore that he's not showing up anymore and that's going to be weird and it's going to suck and I I do kind of worry that this might be one of the like we've always talked about how the MCU has never had that like real big failure like the inhuman sucked or whatever but like there haven't been any real big major public blunders and like this kind of feels like an opportunity for one um and you know might be a minor chip in the foundation but you know it only takes one crack for water to start seeping in so i don't know this kind of sucks it really does and i don't have a lot of faith um in sony keeping the momentum in a good way because Granted, we do have at least one more movie with the same directorial squad, so... That's actually not the case. That's it's been, not the that's, case. Yeah. So that's been um, misreported, and I was wrong about that as well. Oh. So the only the only person who is contractually obligated it's to Tom. make another Spider-Man movie is Tom Holland. Yeah. <laughs> so that's not good, right? <laughs> and um, by the but, way, this is great. Venom 2... Directed by Andy Serkis. Yes. Right. And has Carnage, right? Right, I forgot about that. That did come out. That did come out. Yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, this is, I don't have faith that they're going to deliver a good Spider-Man movie because I think, you know, um, assuming, right, that you uh, agree that both Spider-Man 1 and 2 from the original Sam Raimi trilogy are good movies. Um, Sony has produced exactly two good live-action superhero <laughs> That's movies. That's more than... Uh, I'm sorry. Good. And, you know, Venom, um, I said in our review, which you can go check out, I enjoyed Venom. Venom's not a good movie. Oh, it's a great movie. Um, it's not, though. Oh, like, it's, a terrific it's fun, it's funny, but, like... It's not. There's nothing about it that's like particularly good or standout, oh, right? It's better than these Spider-Man movies. No, it's not. No, it's oh, like it's not. No, it's not. 100%. Phil, if you can look me in the face and Ignore tell him. me that He's you think that there's butt. one shot in Venom that's as good as the Mysterio stuff in Far From Home, like Tom Hardy in the lobster tank, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you. Oh my god, why couldn't this be the episode you weren't here for? So I could just really just have a talk with these guys, you know. If we were literally in Philly and Phil wasn't on the episode, I wouldn't be a happy camper. <laughs> I put the Phil in Philly, baby. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is uh, that's bad news for, Sp- for Spider-Man fans, I think. Okay. I'm so on the face. Yeah. I was like, well, shit. Now the creative drive behind what we know Spider-Man to be is gone. Right, like that, that, that aspect of that character we're never going to see again, assumingly. Um, we're we're not going to see how that plays into the larger story. That, that that's going to suck. Uh, and now, Sony has it to Pete's point. We don't have a lot of faith in it. We've seen you know a few things here and there. What they have released in the past has been great, with the exception of again the Sam Raimi stuff. But like, I I think where it came down to me was. Ultimately, this is what happens when you have, and shit, I'm going to sound like Phil, this is ultimately what happens when you have two companies vying for money, and they a piece of art gets in the way. Yeah. And that's shitty. Yeah, the art's always going to be the casualty, right? Yeah. And, and, and that sucks, knowing that, especially with everything that we've seen so far, the buildup, it sucks that that's ultimately how it went down. I think, uh, I, I, funny enough, I think Phil's brother said it best where it's ultimately the fans that lose. 
it's I I I feel tremendous satisfaction over this. I'm not gonna lie. Um, those movies aren't great for starters. What? Venom is objectively better. And shut the <laughs> fuck up. It's objectively better. Your fucking opinions are so angry. Sorry, you're right. Alright, I just did the math. I carried one. Uh, it's objectively better. Um, <laughs> um and uh Sony's on a roll. They made a masterpiece in Venom and they made Spider Verse, which won an Academy Award. When's the last time a Spider Man won an Academy Award under Disney? I don't know. Because it never happened. Um You know, he's spitting facts. That's right. Uh, Marco, don't start. You're supposed to be a good one. I'm the doctor of truth, okay? I thought you were the doctor of thugonomics. That's true. Word life. <laughs> God, I fucking hate you. <laughs> um, I cannot wait to see Tom Holland wallow in the muck of venom. It's going to be so, so satisfying. That sounded really nasty. Well, that, movie, that movie's a little nasty. My, like, my one consolation in this is that at least there literally has only ever been one good Superman movie. Like one and a half, but yeah. No. Oh, the second one's okay. Mm. Superman 2's okay. No, not really, though. That's okay. I okay. stand by that. Yeah, you, you stand by Superman pulling a cellophane S off his oh, chest. Oh, yeah, that's just, that's yeah. that's like the best scene in the movie. Right, and I I just wanted to illustrate that, which is why your opinions on movies no. should be taken seriously. Oh, no, no, no. See, I appreciate good camp. That's why our listeners always come to me for the best takes. <laughs> anyway. Um, the good other, joke. Oh, no, sincerity. <laughs> don't be bitter. Um, there's plenty of salt over by your feet, it looks like. Um. So the other aspect of this is Disney has just uh, accumulated this massive empire, this massive entertainment empire, and it's really, really frustrating. And this is just a middle finger to them, saying they can't have everything. And like it's petty, but like deep inside, it feels feels good. <laughs> Fuck them. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I. Like, I agree with that in principle, but, like, I'm not happy because it's a property I care about getting caught in the crossfire. And, like, the it's not going to be good. Um, It's going to be good because we don't have to get any more Iron Spider, and I'm totally chill with that. Um, now, while it's nice we had two good villains in those movies, that's the only nice things we had in those movies. Let me let me jump in here. Let uh-huh. me jump in here. Uh-huh. There's, there's, there's more context. Okay. I, I think... That it's interesting the way that this whole deal has been reported, and I want to, I want to, I want to say this. So, the way this thing has been reported, especially at the beginning, it makes it sound like not quite that Marvel won't be producing these movies anymore. It makes it sound like Kevin Feige won't be working directly on these movies anymore, which is actually a different thing. Because if Kevin Feige is is not working on them, but Marvel still is, there are a lot of producers at Marvel. And there are a lot of really talented people over there. So it makes it sound like this is actually not the end of the partnership. Now, there's two reasons why I think that. One is the Deadline article, which was written by Mike Fleming Jr. Now, Mike Fleming Jr. actually has a really good relationship with Sony. And we know this because of the Sony hacks. And his name was in several emails, whether it was him hitting them up 
for uh to ask them you know questions about an, an item that he's about to run or to give them advance notice he's about to talk about something they had that kind of relationship now he says sources tell him everything in this in this article he uses the word sources and he's referring to things that you know someone at someone at sony right probably knows the reason why i think this article is actually just basically written by sony is because their own verbiage in their own response sounds very similar okay and so i think that this news was actually put out by sony i think it was done on purpose and i think it was done because sony wants to hit uh, Disney with this bad PR to force them to agree to the deal that they want or to just straight up walk away. Yeah. If Sony makes Disney look bad, then Sony can walk away without having to take a hit. Cause if Sony is the one that looks bad in this deal, that will affect the bottom line of their next Spider-Man movie. Yeah. But if Disney looks bad, then Sony can say, Hey, we tried our best. So let me read Sony's response, right? Much of today's news about Spider-Man has been mischaracterized, has mischaracterized recent discussions about Kevin Feige's involvement in the franchise. We are disappointed, but respect Disney's decision not to continue to have him as a lead producer of our next live-action Spider-Man film. We hope this might change in the future, but understand that many new responsibilities that Disney has given him, including their newly added Marvel properties... Do not allow time for him to work on IP they do not own. Kevin is terrific, and we are grateful for his help and guidance and appreciate the path he has helped put us on, which we will continue. So what does that sound like more to you? So so, you're, you, so what you're saying is, in actuality, <coughs> Kevin Feige is being pulled off the project. They're going to keep making the movies, but Sony's making a big stink about it and making Disney look bad, so that way they have fan pressure and potentially stakeholder pressure to drive them to make the Sony deal. Yes. But what I'm saying is that Kevin Feige isn't going to be involved. Right, right, right. Right. Because Sony is lying right now. Like does doesn't this sound to you guys like, hey, Kevin Feige's not gonna work on these movies anymore because he's too busy, not right. for any other reason, but we're still cool with Marvel. We just don't have Feige anymore. Yeah. That that is the impression that's given, right? Like it says, like, and it's like, oh, we hope that can change in the future, and yeah, I don't know. It's it's weird. It is weird, and it it like the fact that that Kevin Feige and Tom Holland came out of D twenty three and like definitively said Spider Man will not be in the MCU, and this is what we're doing moving forward or whatever, like feels very final. But when you read this statement from Sony. It does sound a little bit more like posturing again, you know? Yeah, it sounds a lot like that, but it also sounds like it also sounds like scapegoating. Yeah, like just here's us trying to pass the buck and being like Disney is the one that dissolved this deal and they wouldn't agree to our terms. And also to not make it look like it's about money. Yeah, they never talked about money. They said that Kevin Feige doesn't have the time to work on properties that Disney doesn't own. And they made it very clear there that Disney doesn't own this. We do. And we're going to continue to make these movies. And they thank them for helping get them back to where they were. Mm -hmm. Is that not even exactly what I just said? Right. That they they would leave 
because Marvel gave them what they needed, which was Spider-Man polished up. That's exactly what happened. So there was a flip-flop that took place on the internet. At first, people were squarely blaming Sony. Sony let a full day go by with the Forbes uh, with the deadline article being the word on it before they came out with this response. So they took the news item and they turned it on its head and they made Disney the villains. Whereas in the prior news cycle, it was all about right Sony being how Sony fucked up the deal and Sony hates money and exactly right exactly and there was a lie or an, an inflation in the original piece saying that it was that they wanted 50% of the money, which is not the right. case. Yeah, that was like widely mis- misreported. And sources said that. So I'm suggesting that sources mean Sony. Mm-hmm. And that Sony deliberately did that. Could be. Yeah. To turn the narrative in their favor. Right. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, Sony. Uh, huge Sony. I love PlayStation. I have a tattoo of PlayStation on my arm. Yep. I'm a huge fan of Sony now. So <laughs> This is exhausting. Goofball. <laughs> so it used to be the case that Sony had to keep in production a Spider-Man movie every three or so years or the rights would revert. That's still true. The problem was that in, two, in the early year 2000s, they only had Spider-Man. And there weren't any, there was no no concept of a shared universe yet. It didn't exist. So they would have to be constantly making Spider-Man movies to keep up with this, this necessity, this need. And now that's not the case. Right now, they have several properties in the works uh, that involve Spider-Man characters. They've got Morbius. They've got, obviously, Venom 2. There's going to be some kind of... Spider Verse spinoff with the with the uh, the female characters. There's a Craven movie being talked about. Um, th- there's all kinds of things. Black Cat and Silver Sable. Who knows if that's even going to happen? Spider Verse sequel, Sp- uh, an actual sequel. Spider Verse like multiple spinoffs too are supposed to be in the works. Right. So there's all this stuff that they're producing. They've created the Venom Verse. They used Venom to create the Venom Verse, which means that theoretically speaking, they would never again be in danger of losing the rights to Spider-Man. Oh, beautiful. And they did it on Marvel's back. That's <laughs> so, so rad. Isn't it crazy? Uh, they played the long game. Oh, I have a long, slimy tongue like Venom right now, and I'm just savoring <laughs> it. <sighs> Here's the thing. Pete brought up the idea of Spider-Man 1 and 2 being the only good Spider-Man movies that have ever been made does does or or the best ones does everyone here agree that that's true i think those are the only good ones yeah you think that spider-man one or two are the only good ones far from mm-hmm. home is not good oh i wasn't counting that okay no i'm talking okay so you're <laughs> saying those two are the only good ones from sony yes okay got you does everyone agree to that i think the only good spider-man movies are made by sony and i'm not joking that's not hyper phil we know i think those are the better ones i think those are the better ones okay yeah i think spider-man one two venom and especially spider-verse okay so now how about this little piece of info spider-man one and two are the only spider-man movies ever made that were not made producer first how do you mean? Okay, so Spider-Man 1 and 2 
were made by Sam Raimi. Right. And Sam Raimi basically had every single ounce of say-so on that film. Yeah, he was director, writer, and uh, producer, right? Yes. And the vision was his. It was all his brainchild. For like five or six years or something. The worst Spider-Man movie ever made, I would say most people would agree to this, is Spider-Man 3. Or Amazing Spider-Man 2. Maybe. Maybe. I think Spider-Man 3 is a definitely worse. Like, it was a bigger fail, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was the first time that the studio had said, hey, no, why don't you do this instead? Right. Right, they wanted and, Venom and stuff. And that was actually the origin of the superhero film by committee, if you think about it. Sony were the first people to really do that. And it went really, really bad. What about, like, X-Men 3? Uh, well, that X-Men 3 was a weird one, though, because uh, originally it was supposed to have... Who's the director? Brian Singer. Right, and it became and Brett, then Brett, Gra- uh, Brett uh, Ratner. Brett right? Ratner had to take over from Brian Singer because he was leaving, but Brett Ratner actually used a lot of the same ideas okay. that uh, Brian Singer had for the movie. Okay. Which is tough. Yeah, I exactly. The Fox thing. Yeah. So, but this was the first time a superhero movie was made by committee, and it went really badly, but, but Sony learned the wrong lesson. Sony didn't learn the lesson of, oh, we overstepped. They learned the lesson of, oh, we need to get with the times with Spider-Man. So we're going to make them darker. We're going to make them, you know, what, cool you know. and edgy and hip. Right. So, but amazing Spider-Man, flash forward, directed by Mark Webb, who I think he did a really good job with what he had. But if you look at those movies, it's obvious that they were done deliberately to set up things for a universe. So uh, Sony was intent on trying again. They saw what Marvel was doing. They said, hey, there's a way. And they, 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 they tried again. And that didn't work. So to me, I have no faith in Sony's uh, Spider-Man universe. Yeah, and especially because I didn't get to say this before. Like Phil brought up Spider-Verse. Like Spider-Verse is good because Lord, uh, Lord and Miller Miller are good. That's why that's good. Like that movie is good because it they had an insane amount of creative freedom and it was made on like a very small budget and the team was overworked and underfunded and busted fucking ass to make something that was experimental and unique and fresh and new and whatever live action Spider-Man movie that Sony produces is not going to be that because it's going to have a huge budget and it's going to be expected to be the summer blockbuster for them. And it's going to be a movie made by committee. Like, because of course it is. You know? Like, that's just how it is. How was how was Venom made? Was that committee? So, Venom is a project that was long gestating. And now you're giving me the opportunity to bring up another name who I think is absolutely critical to this whole story. And that's Tom Rothman. Tom Rothman is, I believe his title over there is the president at Sony. Uh-huh. Something something like that. Yeah. And he's well known for producing films that are dramatic, you know, uh, good, good, like drama movies and stuff like that. Um, but he's also the same guy who at Fox was the 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 brainchild behind the Fantastic Four. And he was one of the people behind X-Men. He was one of the main people behind X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh, and that movie was made by committee. And that was the movie that had Deadpool not talking, you know. Um, So Tom Rothman came on Venom, a movie that was going absolutely nowhere, development hell. He came on to that movie and things changed dramatically. Kevin Feige also worked on that movie 
and uh, he doesn't get any kind of credit for it, but he actually worked behind the scenes to help make that movie good too. But all reports say that Tom Rothman came in and really shaped it up. And a big part of, from what I read, was that that movie was really made on the editing, like bay. That it was in really, really fucking rough shape until they got it in editing and, and like really pulled it together. And Rothman okay. was sitting there. Right. Rothman was, he was there. He was in the room. Yeah. So that is, to answer your question, it was made by a lot of people. Okay. And it, it was it was made good or, you know, whatever by a lot of people. Okay. Yeah. The, the impression I got from what I read was that he very much salvaged it. Huh, that okay. it was him and and Feige coming in at the end and really like helping it have a vision, yeah, with what they had, and like that was really where it came together was with Rothman kind of leading the charge in the editing bay. It's really beautiful if you think about it because the symbiote can't survive without Eddie Brock, and Eddie Brock couldn't survive without Venom, and so the entire production of the film just represents that symbiosis that really makes Venom tick. It was we made venom that's truly magnificent that's beautiful Phil. thank you wow so tom rothman i think is important to the story because of how badly he's handled superhero stories other than what he did with venom and i think that because he's involved because amy pascal is still involved I don't like her vision for this character. I don't like her vision for the ancillary characters. Because of their involvement, I don't feel like we get a Spider-Man 1, even a Spider-Man 1, not definitely not a Spider-Man 2, from Sony ever again. Because they view Spider-Man as a cash cow, not a vehicle to tell great stories with that transcend. And I love Spider-Man and his rogues gallery. Most of his rogues are not characters that need or should have their own movie. Uh, so I'm curious. They've These executives, these people have now seen what Spider-Man has the potential one to be. Ideally, they see how the character has been able to connect with kids, with, with, the, peop- with the viewers, yeah. right? And hopefully they're able to understand that that is the driver behind Marvel, behind the success of what of what they have in their hands now. Hopefully, but 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 I'm saying they they've seen it in effect now. Yeah. Right. right? They've seen it. They, they've seen it in a vacuum, in 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 context, but they've seen it work, and they've seen it work with the essential need to make a superhero movie work. I think my problem with that line of thinking, though, is. To borrow a page out of the critics of the MCU, right? Like, the I think the biggest thing that you can criticize the MCU for is that it's like, it's safe and it has a house style that is like often very samey, right? And like, you know what you're getting from an MCU movie. So like, Sony attempting to recapture that magic in a bottle by imitating what is already in its critics' minds, a, a pretty, like, safe and bland style doesn't sound like a good idea. You know, like, I think Marvel is the best... Like, the MCU is the best there is at doing the kind of superhero movie that they're trying to do. And I think Sony emulating that is probably not going to be 
Like, I don't know that Kevin Feige gets enough credit for how consistent the quality of projects he's attached to are. You know? Like, there are not many people who have the same level of, like, consistency across their their career for as long as he has. And not in film. No not, one in film. No, and, and it's I, crazy. No. Quentin Tarantino, maybe, maybe. And like, you know, there's like there are obviously other names you can throw out there of people who have had long stretches of great work, but the guy deserves credit where credit's due for succeeding on the level he's succeeded for as long as he has. And I think that like losing him is a big problem. The guy clearly has a talent for getting the right people together behind a project and making things coalesce. And that's something that you really can't imitate, you know? And and I do think Sony's going to struggle there. And I don't think, to your point, I don't think Sony's going to take the alternate route and and get a, a Spider-Verse or Spider-Man 1 and 2 quality movie because, like, giving artists creative control is a risk. And... I honestly don't know that a Spider-Verse sequel is going to be as good because now it has expectations. Now it has to live up to something. Now it has something it has to be. And as soon as you have that, like the the opportunity for real innovation, for real creativity kind of goes out the window. And not to say that they can't make a good movie, but they haven't proven to me that they can make a good movie in a house style. And they don't have a person like Kevin Feige who has creative artistic vision leading a charge. And I don't think that they're going to take the the path they did with what made Spider-Verse successful. So why would it be good? I I agree that like it won't. It it won't have somebody driving that creative vision or force. Like definitely they, they don't have anybody like that on Sony's end. But I think that the potential to, and, and you mentioned it having like uh, Kevin Feige being able to build this like feel for it, this, this aesthetic, mm-hmm. right? Maybe, and because the aesthetic that they have now with Venom doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic that they need uh, to pull from Marvel, but they can pull the themes out and like yeah. the, the the aesthetic can be surrounded around those themes. Yeah, I just I, I just think that without somebody driving it. Yeah. yeah and even yeah, if that's yeah. a director, right? right? Like that could be a case, but like when have we seen Sony do that? Yeah. Right? We haven't. Not since I mean at least with blockbuster properties, not since Sam Raimi. And then they fucked that up. Guess what? Well, I'm hopeful, right, Phil? Guess what? What's up? This is how you know I'm right. Because I said the same thing about Venom a year before it came out. Could be good. I think that it literally could be good. Could be good. It could. So there's there's one last wrinkle (laughs) that I want to add to this. And this is actually something that came from Forbes. Brain's getting a wrinkle. I know, I know. Trust me. It, it, the the amount of downloading I've been doing over the last week. So Mark Hughes is a writer at Forbes, and uh, he put together a really really interesting uh, breakdown of this whole thing. And he came at it from a financier's mind, and I thought that that actually added really interesting context. So he broke down the money stuff, and that stuff I'm not even going to get into all that. All I'll say is that it's very cost ineffective for Sony to continue to produce. Spider-Man movies that don't make Big almost a billion dollars. Right. 
Far From Home made a billion dollars and they get a nice chunk of that. But the movies that they were making before, like Amazing Spider-Man and um, yeah, Amazing Spider-Man, they were going plus about 100 million. Right. Which is not a lot. No. And it's especially not worth it if you don't have merchandise rights and stuff. Right. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. Meanwhile, if Far From Home costs $300 million to, to make, right? But it costs, but you make a billion point one. If you split that one fifty out, if you split if you split the three hundred thousand it costs to make it out between Marvel and well, and then plus and like Disney. the what fifty thousand or fifty million dollars that Disney gets right. for their one five percent or whatever. Yeah, um, but um, but what I mean is like if you if you take the cost of making the movie and you split that between Sony and Disney. And it's making a billion dollars. They're, you know, they're not doing badly with no. that at all. Um, and and it's not even a split; it's a seventy thirty. So, um, but what the Forbes article says that I thought was really interesting is that Sony is probably going to sell their film division within two years. <laughs> that that it within t- within two years they will most likely sell their film division. And guess who's going to buy it? No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be Disney. Fox. It wouldn't be Fox either. It would be who knows who. But what's, what makes that interesting is that the rights to Spider-Man cannot transfer. So, During the sale. Yeah. So if Time Warner or whatever buys Sony, then Marvel still gets Spider-Man back. But if they lose the rights to Spider-Man without selling the, the rights to Marvel, then they make no money. Because let's say in 2022, uh, they get bought and Spider-Man reverts. It's not a sale. It's just a reversion. So they're Marvel's getting the rights back for free. Oh, for free, right. Right. So you're saying. Whereas if today they were to say, okay, you know what? If you give us a billion dollars, you can have Spider-Man. Yeah. Then they would have gone plus off Spider-Man. And when they get purchased, they saw all they that money yeah. and didn't have to make any movies to get there. So... That, I thought, was another really interesting point. That is interesting. Why not just sell? Yeah, why not? Especially if you're planning on... That is really interesting. Is If, if there's actually like a, 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 a statistically significant chance that Sony will be sold in the next two years, why even go through all this? Yeah. Try to leverage the best... Yeah, you know, money. Yeah, that's really it. But, then but you I just mean, wait like, it. you just but, wait it out. Then. But what they're doing right now, right, of being like, well, fuck it, we're just gonna take our ball and go home. They're not even gonna get a movie made in two years, right. or maybe one. To be fair, right. that's all their contract is for, though. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, they just cash out and then they're done. Could be if if they feel that they can make more than a billion dollars alone off of Spider-Man in the next five years or, you know, two, this guy's timeline is two, two, three years. If they can make more than than a billion dollars off of Spider-Man within that time frame, it was probably better to keep him than to sell him. Mm. But that's in making the money. That's, that's, a, that's a big that's, maybe, too. Right. But that but again, far from home makes a billion. Sony doesn't see a billion, even if Sony produced it. And Marvel had no cut at all. They still don't see a billion. That's not that's not you know net or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. They would need to make several movies that made a billion to get a billion off Spider Man, and that's not going to happen. No. So before before we close out, one last question for the room. Interesting. 
who wins? If this deal is really over for good, who wins? Not Disney. Nobody really, because I because I think obviously Disney lost, right? I think it's pretty clear they fucking overplayed their hand. They got greedy and like Ooh, man okay well we're gonna have to we're gonna have to break that down how okay. do you figure they got greedy so i mean i feel like if if the truth of the original report that sony wanted to continue the deal under the agreed upon terms i feel like disney should have just said yes why because like they're fine like they they made they're making a ton of money on merchandising for Spider-Man and the point you made about Spider-Man's stock being at an all-time high they make that everywhere else that it counts and that's significant and the fact that like they did try to and granted it's business right you want to get a better deal and play ball or whatever but like that assertion of of wanting a bigger cut they lost out ultimately whereas if they had just been like yeah whatever this is good enough we're making a billion in toy sales and whatever we're making our money on spider-man just fine and eventually you know if the reality of sony being sold is true or whatever we're gonna get the rights back soon anyway keep it keep it riding and see what happens when this deal's up right yeah it it, it wasn't a tactical move for whatever reason it, it, it had to be something bigger than that um and I think that's to your point, or like to the article's point of just like there was, uh, it was about the public awareness, right? It was about like like stirring up, stirring the pot, and and, and making a big fuss over something, because mm-hmm. um, you don't make a business decision like this. It, it doesn't make sense, so it has to be that. Yo, I'm just going to pull the kimono back right now, listeners. Phil fell asleep. He's sleeping on Marco right now. It's midnight. He's a sleepy boy. He's a sleepy boy. But I'm glad because now we can have an adult conversation. <laughs> no. uh, so that that's kind of my read on it is that I feel like Disney overplayed their hand, you know, because um, they wanted a better deal for themselves, which like, fine. Um, shit, what, what was the point I was making before we sidetracked to, for me to explain that? I forget where I was driving the car. It's getting late. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Oh, I had asked who won, who lost. Right. Okay. So Disney, clear loser. Um, I don't really think that you can argue that Sony won considering they always owned Spider-Man. Right? So like they only like they only win if the next Spider-Man movie makes a billion dollars, whatever, and they get to pocket all that money and and it comes out fine for them. Which I think based on the conversation we had seems pretty unlikely. And the fact that I think that despite the fact that there was this public announcement or whatever, there's a lot of people who are still buying into the narrative of that. Sony are the bad guys and they fucked us on this one and they're the reason Tom Holland won't be in the MCU anymore. And if enough people feel that way that they're like, I'm not going to go see that movie or even a, a few people do that, and then it doesn't get reviews that are super good, and we find ourselves in an amazing Spider-Man two or one level of financial return. Then Sony loses too, and I think the fans clearly lose because if you're a fan of Tom Holland in the MCU, he's gone, and that fucks up the MCU and fucks up you getting to see more of that story or the conclusion of what they've already set up, which is obviously a bummer. And if you're, you know, like Phil, who's asleep now, uh, 
not a fan. I also don't think Sony's going to make a good Spider-Man movie. So you don't win either. You don't get what you wanted, which is a Spider-Man movie that's good, that is in a different direction or vision than the MCU. So I think I don't really see how anybody wins in this scenario. Again, unless none of that shit matters and Spider-Man still makes a billion dollars because it's Spider-Man, which totally possible. And if Sony pulls that off and then gets sold in two years anyway, then I guess they did win. But we're going to see where the chips fall for that one before I'm willing to call it for them. The real loser here, listener, is you! It's definitely me. I'm the real loser. Pete's the, yeah, it's Pete. It's definitely Pete. The biggest loser. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Disney lost pretty hard, but I actually think that Disney was always going to lose because I think that Sony outplayed them. Uh, I think that Sony was playing a game that was long ranging congratulations disney you just played yourself <laughs> you well, could have hired sean he would have been able to see this coming <laughs> i i i think i think sony played them and i think they played them well i think that they got marvel to do what sony couldn't do which was to make spider-man great again and now that he is they're like oh thanks we'll have our toy back now now that he's a billion dollar <laughs> franchise whereas he was never making a billion before we'll take it I think that Disney was making a play not for money only and not even like mostly. I think they were making a play for control. control. I think they wanted access to more characters. I think they wanted more control over the Venomverse overall. I think they wanted to make all of that fit the Marvel style more so that Marvel could really just have all their characters back in a real way. Um, and if Sony had been down for that, then they would have reaped the benefits because they still could have made the Venomverse movies. They just would have been better than they have been. But again, Sony is riding high. They have two really big successes uh, in Venom and Spider-Verse. And I think they see this as like, hey, we're fine. You know, yeah. um, we still have all the characters we had before. Um, and they have Tom Holland for the next movie. If they can sway... John Watt, I think his name is John Watts, to come back and make Spider-Man 3, then, then what else could they have asked for? That's exactly what I think they always wanted. A movie with the main Spider-Man actor, the director who's brought him back to prominence, and all the money and all the control. So that's what I think. The last point I have to make on this subject, and then we're going to close, is that Disney lost on a harder level than I've actually heard anyone mention. Disney lost out on the biggest character they have left because Captain America and Iron Man are gone. And those were the two biggest stars by far of the MCU, and they don't have them anymore. And when you look at the Phase 4 slate, it is not super appealing. There were a lot of people who were overall disappointed and that slate did not feature the Fantastic Four or the X-Men. And that's not a good omen because it means that it won't be until at least 2022 before they have big characters to use again. If Spider-Man is really gone. Yeah. Because what franchise other than Spider-Man that has made a billion dollars is left? Thor has not made that much money. I don't feel like Thor four made a billion or Thor three made a billion dollars, no. but yeah, there there is none because the only other properties that did it 
were uh were Iron Man and uh Cap and Cap. So yeah. Um that's all I had though. Yeah. It's a tough spot. Tough spot for the MCU right now. Um yeah. it's gonna be interesting to see how they have to handle it, I think. Cause they you know, Kevin Feige said at D23 that it's like, well, we always knew this wouldn't last forever and we told the story we wanted to tell and we'll always be happy about that or whatever. But like, nah, man, like you positioned Peter Parker as the next, you know, generation of heroes, right? And everything. And like, I I think it's going to be really hard to pivot away from that without acknowledging him, yeah. you know, and like. He's going to just be dead off screen now or, you know, whatever. Like, we're never going to hear from him again. It's weird. It's weird. And it's going to be weird. And uh, I don't know how they're going to handle that. And I think that's going to be, you know, granted, to your point, maybe they just fucking sit on their hands and wait until phase four is over and hopefully Sony gets sold and they get Spider-Man back and all's hunky-dory and they just have to it, have the PR problem of being like why is there this non-in-universe spider-man movie with tom holland and then you know we're all back on track but i don't know man it's an interesting story for sure tom holland the spider-man cool thanks (laughs) (laughs) Uh, phil how was your slumber uh it was weird i just felt like i kept hearing pete yell about marvel movies that's what was happening. Oh, shit. Maybe I wasn't asleep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's going to do it for our conversation about the Sony Disney Spider-Man uh, relationship breakdown. It's unfortunate. I know a lot of people are really unhappy. I'm not happy, um, but I'm, I'm actually not worried either because I don't think that this is the last time that we'll have seen Spider-Man interact with the MCU characters. I think it'll happen again. I don't know that it is going to be within even the next five to ten years. But I do think it will happen again. That's a that's going to be crazy to figure out how to deal with that. But that's a bridge to cross at a later time. For now, we just have to accept the fact that uh, Spider-Man is gone. He uh, turned into dust, turned into ash, never to be seen again. Good riddance. Mr. Bartley. I don't feel so good. Yeah, good. Go away. Right? <laughs> right, Phil? Yes, please. Tom, uh, you're fine. Tom, go home. You're fine, but go back to Holland, man. <laughs> wow. Okay. So if you want to let us know your thoughts about that or any of the other subjects we covered on this or any other episode of the show, you can reach out to us in a ton of different ways. You can catch us on social media at the Comics Pals. You can write to us at thecomicspals at gmail.com. Whatever podcast hosting platform you're on, you can leave us comments there and we'll read them uh, and interact with you, of course. We love the interaction we've been getting with you guys, so let's keep that going. If you have ever wanted to write in for whatever reason, now's a great time to do it, and uh, we'd really appreciate hearing from you all. So, again, thecomicspalsatgmail.com. We've got some really great book clubs out right now. We've got Web of Spider-Man out. If you're if you're feeling like reading about Spider-Man for whatever reason, it's Web Spinner's Tales of Spider-Man, yep. I think. Uh, we've got that out. We've got Spider-Man Blue out. 
uh, Craven the Last Hunt Out, all those kind of book clubs, and then non-Spider-Man related book clubs. There's just so many different ones. Howard the Duck is out tomorrow if you're listening to this on launch day, which is Monday. Um, Howard the Duck will be out, and there's tons of other stuff coming down the pipe. So Alex, was Ada was good. Yes. More yes. topically, Venom. Venom. What Venom. Uh, lethal Protector. That's right. Yeah, that was okay. Um, so with that, let's do some plugs. Pete. Thanks for joining us here on another episode of The Comics Pals. If you want to connect with me, I'm at loud underscore Pete on Twitter. Uh, come talk to me about you know your thoughts on this whole Sony Spider-Man thing. I've been talking about it a lot over on Twitter. So uh, come chat with me and uh, do me a favor and go like harass Phil because I feel like he needs a taste of his own medicine. Are you encouraging cyberbullying on the yeah, internet? Yeah, definitely. I don't usually like cyberbullying, but if it's against Phil, I'm okay with that. Wow. Um, and if you want to find more of my stuff, you can find my uh, my shit over at loopots.com. I do uh, their weekly Nintendo podcast, The Potscast. So go uh, check that out, I guess. Bye. Pete and Bessie confirmed toxic. <laughs> Mark your problematic fave. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Mr. Mark Lanamoto. Uh Another quick shout out to Greg Anderson LC uh, for his book is Nana the Were Spider. Um, by, from Webway Comics. He's self-published. He's a really cool dude. Um, I'm going to talk to him uh, over this weekend, so stay tuned for that. Uh, it should be coming out within the next week or so. And then I'm also going to be talking to uh, Rachel Young, who writes this really cool series called Witchman. Um, and so you'll see our conversation as well. Awesome. Oh, oh, and if anybody knows what concrete there's this dark horse book from like the late, you, it's it's been amazing. Uh, I'm gonna share a picture, guys. There's a uh, a book from like the late '80s, early '90s, dark horse called Concrete about a man who's turned into concrete and is a concrete man, and it's fascinating. He's a man who's turned into concrete, Infinite, and he's a concrete man. Infinitely fascinating. It's just like me. I'm a concrete man. Look, I, I, can I, can I just read what got me into this? Sure. Uh, yeah, dog. All right, right here goes. This is this is the text. Asked to leave before the cast arrives, concrete hides to watch the filming. Colored lights, a jungle fogger, and the smoke pots transform the wasteland. A story based on a group of market research derived toys becomes in the hands of adults with skills and judgment an excuse for a weirdly beautiful vision. And he thinks, maybe it's just the energy of the crew affecting me, but there's magic here. I'm not in my dreary reality, or at least I'm seeing outside it. And it's drawn in this uh, really romantic, uh, uh, like, renaissance style. And it's gorgeous, and uh, in context in the story, it's beautiful. And that's it. Thank you, Marco. Thank you for sharing. Much appreciated. Phil, how about you? You gonna read to us? No, I'm 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 here to rally behind a cause, Sean. Oh, okay. Yeah. If you want to get at me on social media, yeah, on Twitter, yeah, and Instagram, and really stand up for a cause, get at me with hashtag stop bullying <laughs> and hashtag anti bullying, and go to stopbullying.gov. If you really want to make a stand against problematic figures in our podcasting sphere, because only mm, in this yeah. way can we actually make a difference and donate to your favorite charity. 
Thank you. And that charity uh, is St. Marco's Church for the Resilience. So uh, you can you can bend with me. And uh, wow, this this organization is anti Disney. So it is get behind the cause. I don't I don't like because Disney's bullying me. <laughs> uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram only at Sean Soapbox. Hit me up to uh, simply send an F to my Twitter page. Just Thanks. just. Just tweet me F uh, <laughs> to pay your respects <laughs> for the loss of a young boy named Peter Parker. Um, you hardly knew him. Hardly knew him. So with that, we the Comics Pal signing off. Take care, guys. See you next week. We are Venom. Love you.